You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. Welcome to the Oz Network for the start of month number two of Anniversary Month. <laughs> we're doing really good on our timetable here. Uh, but we're finally here to bring you our next anniversary movie. Uh, if you heard us about two weeks ago doing the 40th anniversary of Greece, you are in for a treat because we're going back even further to the oldest movie we have ever covered here on the Oz Network. <laughs> 2001 A Space Odyssey celebrating its 50th anniversary. I think we did do Night of the Living Dead last year, which was also came out the same year, but I checked and this came out a few months earlier. So officially oldest movie in the history of the Oz Network. Uh, and the movie itself may still be playing somewhere. Uh, we're not sure if we finish this or not. But uh, this is going to be a fun one to cover. My name is Colin and... But you look sweet upon the street. On a bicycle built for two. <laughs> and my name is Ben. Yeah, that's my quote. There's just nothing being said there. <laughs> that's the biggest quote hold in the on, movie. Hold on. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> du, 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 du. I, I mean, if that song hadn't been in this movie, my quote just would have been "woo." <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one's fun though i'm gonna set up you know we did anniversary month last year and the whole idea that we had was well, let's pick movies we're gonna get different opinions so let's pick a movie that uh in the case of titanic you loved it i hated the movie we'll get different opinions white man can't jump i loved it you had never seen it uh face off we both loved it dirty dancing we both hated it <laughs> This year, it was a little bit different because we weren't, you know, looking at the anniversary movies, we weren't really sure what to cover. And I was listening to another podcast, which I, I think I've mentioned um, on here before. It's called Unspooled. And uh, basically, it's a, a movie critic and a comedian who are going through the AFI Top 100 list randomly. And I was listening to them do 2001 A Space Odyssey. As I was listening to the episode, I mean, they're, of course, very much appreciating the movie, as most people do. And all I could think to myself is, this movie's going to blow Ben's mind in the worst way. <laughs> so it may have been a cruel trick knowing uh, the reaction that we were going to get out of this, but, um... <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm, I'm just trying to work out um, with us who's the movie critic and who's the comedian. Uh, <laughs> so... I mean, we both fail at both, I feel. Oh, that's a bit offensive. <laughs> I mean, you try hard at your comedy, column, Like, you know... This, um, uh, okay, here's, here's where I'm going to, I already know what you're going to do with this movie. <laughs> I'm just to hear some of your opinions. Well, I wouldn't be so sure. Okay, Come well, on. Like, Ben buys it. Don't judge. End of episode. Book by its cover. <laughs> As Ben just learned, there are four books <laughs> in this series. This is the first of many to come here on the Oz Network. Um, I also learned that books have covers, too, so there we go. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm just going to say this. I saw this movie for the first time when I was 18, and I don't know if my... You're watching it. <laughs> I don't know if my reaction was any different from what I'm guessing your reaction is. And I don't think that's any different from anybody's reaction. In all fairness, I have talked to a lot of people who love this movie. Very few people who dislike it. I don't think I've really ever met somebody who said, I flat out dislike this movie, but... I'll introduce you to my dad. <laughs> we talked about that leading up to this episode. Uh, I don't think anybody really gets this movie on a first view. And I think the first time I saw it, 
I was watching it on TV. I'd heard so much about it, and I expected to just be blown away. And instead, I was like, this is the most interesting thing I've ever seen, but I have no idea what I just watched. And it really <laughs> took a couple months later, I think, just renting it, being like, yeah, let me give it a second chance to, to start to get more of it. And, and there are a lot of things that I think help. I mean, definitely rewatching the movie. It's, it's one of these movies that... Uh, if you ever, or your dad, ever uh, felt the need to watch this a second time, I guarantee your reaction is going to completely change because you understand a lot more. It helps to have read the book, which it also helps to read. Sorry, Ben. But Ow. there is a sequel, uh, which is based on the sequel book, which gives a little bit more insight so you can understand the plot a little bit more, the, the very little plot there is in this movie. Uh, but just to put that out there, um, I love this movie now. I always forget how much I love it. I watched the movie halfway through it. I'm like, maybe this is a little overrated. And then by the end of the movie, I'm like, wow. But first viewing, didn't get it at all. Um, well, uh, as you said, you started watching it when you're 18. So uh, I started watching it when I was 31. <laughs> uh, I think I, I think I just got past the credits. So um, that's good. Started a week ago. Um, I believe a monkey's about to appear anytime soon. Um, look, I I'd obviously, you know, live under a rock like those monkeys do i have heard a lot about this film i did do film studies at university we did do stanley kubrick but we never watched this film um so i am very much familiar with this and i feel like similar to what i said about greece that you kind of know the famous bits of this movie you know the music you you know a lot about this because so many elements of this film has been parodied before i mean your picture right now is a picture of homer simpson as the baby at the end um and you know there's lots of um bits of this film that i've seen parodied before so you know i didn't know exactly purely what to expect my dad absolutely despises this film he <laughs> thinks it's absolutely rubbish um but like i'm just gonna say this now i didn't come out of this film hating it i i've had a week since i've watched this movie so there's been a lot to digest i've watched a lot of uh you know videos on youtube basically what on earth happened in 2001 a space odyssey because i'm like i'm so dumb i don't understand this but then obviously nobody else does because a lot of people are dumb on youtube that's why there's so many videos of 2001 a space odyssey explained and i think the that really stood out for me is that the fact that this movie is 50 years old and it looks so goddamn good yeah um and I'm not the biggest fan of older movies. Um, I sort of will only watch James Bond and Star Wars pre-1980. Um, Jaws, maybe, you know, a few others here and there. Um, but, I mean, like you said before, that um, Night of the Living Dead came out the same year. <laughs> really? <laughs> if you look at the elements of special effects compared to both films, obviously... They both had significantly different budgets. Um, but, yeah, I, I just... It's definitely a unique film in its own way, and it's it's one that I can definitely understand why it's got such a reputation on both sides of the fence. Uh, considering there's, like, two things that happen in this film, I really don't think we're going to take a long time to cover this movie. <laughs> there's going to be no brush it, brush it, brush yeah. moments in this movie. So. Uh, we will get some karaoke in here, I'm sure, though, but... Um... Oh, can we? Just hold the classical music. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Can we just have the, the chip-biting sound effects? We could do a Simpsons episode on the Homer Goes to Space <laughs> and get more material out of the story than we are with this. And that's from somebody who loves this movie. Uh, just commenting on what you said about um, the, the the visuals of this movie. I mean, it is crazy how well this movie holds up visually. 
and I'm not just talking about mm. like the effects, but I mean like the cinematography, the sets, just the way it was shot. It just it it, it the way it's edited, the the little things that they did with the sound design, uh, which I'm excited to talk about that when Dave has to break back into the ship when he's been locked out by Hal. Little things with the sound. I mean, it's it's unlike any movie you've seen before, and I think it was way ahead of its time. And when we get to the reviews on the end, we're going to see like how divided the opinions were on this movie. Uh, but just in terms of the visual effects alone, this movie comes out in 1968. Star Wars is really the next movie after this where people say, wow, that looks real. And I'm going to make a crazy statement here. This is coming from you know Star Wars, my all-time favorite movie. Um, I think the effects in 2001 hold up better than the effects in Star Wars. I mean, maybe that's partly. I'd agree with yeah, that. maybe it's partly because they are so realistic. But I think that's why the effects in this deserve so much more credit because they weren't just making something where it's like an airplane in space. They were making something that looked real. You have space stations. You had real physics that they had to explain and all that. And everything in this movie was so based in reality, which would make it that much harder to pull off. And now that we're 50 years later and we can look at these effects and I could say, if you made this movie today, it probably wouldn't look as good as this because you would be using some CGI that wouldn't look the same. Uh, that more than anything, I think is probably the legacy of this movie, less than the story and more just visually. And it is weird that this is a movie that's living on 50 years later, almost solely based on the reputation of the visuals. And I think it's it's fascinating to the thing that dates this movie is looking at the advertising materials for it. You see the poster, you know, you see kind of things like that, and that's when you go, oh yeah, this is a an old film. And I mean, there are every now and then sort of, you know, it's mainly when the humans are on the screen and they're talking that like it sort of feels like a movie set in that. But yeah, I definitely agree about the Star Wars. Um, the, the the special effects in this movie are nearly flawless. I mean, we talked about. Jurassic Park when we did that about how well that stands up and that's 25 years old I mean this this movie is you know 50 years old it's double the age and you would show this to a lot of people and not tell them when this movie was made and I'm sure they would think that this is a you know made a lot uh earlier mm-hmm. than uh, sorry later than in history than it is than it is than it was that makes sense Ben <laughs> it is than um, it, it, <laughs> it is than it is than it was um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's incredible, uh, just how good this film looks. And, you know, you say Star Wars, I mean, how many times did George Lucas had to retouch it and redo it to make it kind of look newer? Whereas, uh, I'm sure I'm probably wrong. I don't think this film really has been brought out in extra versions. No. And I mean, still for the Blu-ray, it's been sort of slightly improved, but this is a movie that I feel has not really been touched much in 50 years. And even just looking at history, you know, this comes out in 1968, so they're a year away from the moon landing. Obviously, everybody knew what space looked like and all that, but, I mean, the time they're developing this movie, like, what people often don't realize is, like, how quickly the Apollo missions and everything came together. So, at the time that Stanley Kubrick started developing this movie with Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the book... It was sort of working side by side. Arthur C. Clarke had written a short story. Stanley Kubrick said, I'd like to kind of turn this into a movie. And they just worked on the script while Clarke was writing the novel. This is a couple of years ahead of time. So uh, there was a lot of things even outside of just the moon landing that we see in the future. Like Skype appears in this movie, people. (laughs) We're using Skype right now. And uh, Thanks, Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We have Stanley Kubrick to thank for all modern technology. But it's... (laughs) It's crazy that they base this so much in reality that you could go back to any decade and talk to a futurist who will say, this is the technology we're going to have in 30 years, and they're not going to nail it. 
this is pretty I'm not going to say this is 2001 obviously the year 2001 this is a little too advanced for that but this movie kind of exists in a world where you feel like yeah everything has sort of come to be now all of this is fairly even even commercialized space flights be, you know coming a thing now uh whether or not it happened in 2001, it doesn't date this movie to look at it the way a lot of other movies are, where you're like, in the far future of 1997, and <laughs> meanwhile, you've got hyperspeed, you know? Um, it all still feels so based in reality, and everything's sort of uh, come together from all the predictions this would have, even if it's like a decade or a decade and a half later, that really nothing about this movie, other than a, a little bit of the acting style, like you said, feels dated at all. Well, and I think the the time setting, which, you know, it's easy to laugh back now, as you said, like, oh, 2001 wasn't quite like this. It's kind of like when, um, you know, Back to the Future year happened a few years ago, like they had all those articles about things that Back to the Future predicted correctly. But you still kind of look at Back to the Future 2 and go, okay, no, not yeah. quite. But, I mean, you think about right now that in 33 years in the future, uh, you know, what, 2051, like we would all right now assume that there's going to be flying cars mm-hmm. and we're all going to be traveling to Jupiter. It's just, it's always kind of that notion that we want to believe in our head. And I remember you said, you know, talking to my mum, sort of, you know, she would have been seven, no, eight when this movie was set. And kind of, she would say about things like, you know, when I was a kid, we would have never imagined that we would have had a, a small little thing in our pocket that we can fit 30,000 songs on, you know, and just like weird little things like that. Or we, you know, never would have imagined we could have walked around with a little camera in our pocket that we can just look at a photo and do things like that. So you do think of amazing things that you didn't at an age, and we're going to have that things in 33 years. But yeah, I, I think it's always interesting, like as you said, how futurists kind of, go ahead and think about it because um you know as far as i've read about this movie it's fairly scientifically accurate at least with a lot of the space stuff so you know i'm sure that a lot of the futurists genuinely believe this is what 2001 would look like and sadly we're still waiting for trips to jupiter yeah it's coming though you know once they figure out how to navigate past the floating baby fetuses in space yes yeah, those damn floating babies. And the only talking Hal that we had in 2001 was Brian Cranston and Malcolm in the Middle. So, And even Hal. Like, is Hal just not Siri? Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Hal, uh, what's the weather meant to be tomorrow in Winnipeg? The weather in Winnipeg tomorrow is going to be minus three degrees. Also, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Get outside. Uh, You, you mentioned something i didn't expect which is that you you know had a class on stanley cooper because uh you know leading into this movie um the the main thing well i guess he had had spartacus which was a big hit uh but what really he kind of made a name for himself on was uh dr strange love or how i learned to stop worrying love the bomb and there's a very famous off air conversation from the recording of double oz seven our james bond sister (laughs) podcast when we were doing an episode on one of the, I think it was the comedy version of uh, uh, Casino Royale, and Noah and I suggested using the title Dr. Noah or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Good Thighs, <laughs> and you just did not understand it at all. <laughs> it's a movie. Clearly I paid attention in Stanley Kubrick class that day in university. It's oh. a movie, Ben. It's the title. Yeah, but it doesn't make any sense. No, it's a satire. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, which Kubrick movies have you been exposed to outside of 2001 now? I'm pretty sure we did Lolita mm. um, from memory. Um, you know, good old choice. Uh, but I think it was mainly a case of 
you know, we mainly sort of just read about Kubrick and then, you know, we sh- were showing clips and sort of of his styles to kind of give a, a varying degree of showing what his style is. But then I'm pretty sure from mm-hmm. the leaders, and I think we also watched the, was it Ray Fiennes did? Well, no, it wasn't Ray Fiennes. Who was, um, who was in, oh. You know, I don't know if you've ever watched the Lolita movies. It's a very me movie, of course. It's Batman who falls in love with a kid. Yeah. So, of course, you know, I'm going to be watching those movies. But, no, <laughs> it's... Um, it was more... I think that was the only one we did because I've never... I don't even think I've seen The Shining. Mm. Um, so, yeah, obviously I'm a huge uh, <laughs> film connoisseur. Um, I've seen Artificial Intelligence, if that technically is a Kubrick yeah. film, sort of. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, um... I'm a huge Kubrick fan, uh, and I actually think that this might have been... Well, I think I saw The Shining. I did see The Shining growing up, um, but this was probably like the first Kubrick movie I was exposed to, and sort of through this and just hearing so much about him, I kind of watch all of his movies, like from The Killing Up. So, I mean, I've seen Spartacus, Paths of Glory, Doctor Strangelove, um, Barry Lyndon, but like my favorite, which is if 2001 was the movie, like a Kubrick movie, an, an intellectual movie where I'm like... Ben is just going to love this. Uh, a Clockwork Orange <laughs> is the one where I legitimately I'm like, Ben will actually love this movie. Because A Clockwork Orange is My... like, it's, it, well, first of all, it was the first X-rated movie, uh, I think, for like a major Hollywood movie. Not that it's a porno. It has some, nowadays it would just be rated was R. Deep Throat? Or was Deep Throat after A Clockwork Orange? Uh, well, no, that was like the first mainstream X-rated, like, I'm talking a non-pornography film. This was oh, a Hollywood okay. movie gotcha. that accepted an X rating. And they said, fine, we'll stick with it. We'll use it for publicity. Uh, but A Clockwork Orange, you're probably most familiar, probably also from The Simpsons, you know, the visual of somebody being strapped to a chair with their eyes peeled open, being forced to watch, like, you know, hideous acts. Uh, Clockwork Orange is a My sister movie. loves that movie. And, and that's kind of what people do with this um, show. They're tied to a chair and open their ears and forced to listen to a hideous <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's everybody who listened to Grease. By the way, thank you for the feedback I received from uh, my nephews listening to our Grease podcast because uh, their mom had showed them the movie Grease. Like Uncle Colin did a did a podcast on Grease. Let's listen to it. Uh, sent me a message back saying, "Hey, you guys did a really good job reviewing that movie." By the way, none of you should do karaoke ever again. <laughs> 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 so that was our feedback. Um, <laughs> wow. But I thought I liked it. <laughs> but um, no, with like Clockwork Orange, I think that, that that movie is like full of story and it is full on satire and very violent at times, very sexual at times, but like all with a purpose. And it's a movie that's like you leave the movie knowing exactly what it's about. And that's if I had like a bucket list of five movies I'd love to cover, that would be one of them on there. So. Uh, maybe when we get to the 50th anniversary of that in three years. But we should jump into... we do Stanley Kubrick month so we can do Eyes Wide Shut and just talk about orgies. Cause oh. you'll, you'll be educated in that day, Colin, I think. Like, and... oh, so when multiple people get naked and have sex, it's called <laughs> orgies. The, the funny thing is I'm, I'm a huge Eyes Wide Shut fan, too. I think I saw Eyes Wide Shut, uh, you know, right after I saw 2001. And I, I'm probably the only person who, in that scene, because there was that controversy in Eyes Wide Shut when they use like digital lamps to cover all the the private parts during the orgy scene i'm like the only person who's like you know i think it actually works better that way (laughs) i'm more comfortable (laughs) and everybody's got oh there's an orgy scene let's go that was a 50 shades of gray of 1999 (laughs) and then ah stupid lamp i'm like why there was no cole kidman's boobs why are they wrestling without clothes on (laughs) i don't understand this what's with the masks like aren't they dancing (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> we should jump into 2001 here. And the great thing is that we're going to be able to cover 45 minutes of this movie in about six <laughs> sentences. Um, but the very first note I made was, did Ben make it through the all black overture? Um, which I didn't, I didn't get what was happening. I thought I downloaded a done <laughs> copy or something. So I'm like going, I hear music, but there's nothing on my screen. I'm like, what? Like, what's happening right now? And I timed it at two minutes and 59 <laughs> seconds until we got MGM on screen. So, I mean, traditionally... Even the credits take a while to get through. You know, overtures and uh, intermissions were used for these big productions when, you know, they would charge... Kind of like the way IMAX is now. You would charge a premium and you'd release a movie uh, taking it on the road. It would only go, like, one city at the time. And if you had a really long movie like this, like, back in these days, two hours and... 30 minutes was you need an intermission for this that's too long for a person to sit still and they say we don't have an attention span now which is funny but uh this does not say overture on it which i think is is, it was almost like a practical joke like stanley kubrick's like i'm gonna test your patience every moment of this movie (laughs) so let's just start out and see who wants to sit through a black screen with noise playing because it's not even really music is it it's just sort of noise it's like, yeah, when you go to see uh, a, a show with an orchestra and they do that warm-up, yeah. so they're just like... Mm, do, 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 yeah, it's tuning yeah. the instruments overture. Yeah. My dad was gone by this point. <laughs> he gets to 90 seconds. I'm done. Stupid. <laughs> That's all my dad's seen of this film. Oh, I saw the black screen with the music. Don't need to see it with the girls. Because <laughs> he believes the entire movie was just music with a black screen. <laughs> He's like, I sat through it for two and a half hours. There can't possibly be more than this. <laughs> Yeah. his version really was broken. <laughs> but do, you th- do you think, like, theatre-goers or, like, you know, movie workers legitimately thought this, you know, like, if it was broken, if their projector was broken, oh, no, this is just 2001 Space Odyssey, there's a large portion of it that's in black. Yeah. And then, like, they hear these monkeys banging on things, like, wait, I think we're meant to see a gorilla at this point, aren't we? I'm not too sure. Uh, there's a lot of things like that in this movie where, I mean, that's what I'm going to find more interesting to talk about than anything else is, how we can view a movie like this now and still be a little bit confused, but like how much this must have messed with people in 1968. Cause this isn't even the last weird, you know, out of the ordinary thing we see here. Uh, but even just the opening of the movie, I mean, you get the, the, the big music. Everybody knows that. Dun, 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 dun. Sorry for the karaoke, everybody. Uh, oh God, your nephews are going to hate you. <laughs> they've already tuned out. <laughs> um, and then we get the Donna Man. So if you came into this movie expecting to see an artificial intelligence spaceship try to kill a bunch of people and a man get reborn in space. So- Watch the Terminator. <laughs> yeah. We have 20 minutes of apes running from cheetahs <laughs> and sleeping. <laughs> Doing all the other exciting things apes did before they learned to kill. Uh, this is the part of the movie that I don't think anybody gets. And I, I don't even think you finished the movie getting what the point of this is. Like, I'm interested to hear what your take was in this first 20 minutes because we kind of know now, and if you watch any of those videos and they interpret it correctly, you know, mm. you're seeing all these apes, and at this point, they're the prey. Uh, and they're being hunted and everything, but they can do nothing about it. And there's this giant monolith, this giant black structure just appears. They all start going crazy. And it's still not even a right-away thing. It's like a day and a half later, one of them just is like smashing a bone on the ground, not even knowing what he's doing, realizes it can break a skull. And one person may interpret this as, oh, well, this is violence being brought in the world. It was actually, the whole purpose is that this monolith somehow is, you know, accelerating the mental evolution of these apes. 
and giving them the ability to defend themselves through this bone or whatever, which is it's a really smart idea if you think about it, but I don't think anybody gets this on first viewing, and I don't think you even get it if you finish the movie. If you have the time to sit down and think about it for 30 minutes afterwards, you may come up with this. But uh, w- before we even get into the rest of the movie, let's just quickly talk about the apes and what you were thinking here. Well, you do get 30 minutes to think about it, because it's about 30 minutes after this until <laughs> something else happens. That so is true. You're, you're fine. Um, I don't know what I was thinking, because like, I think it's kind of... You, just knowing what you were thinking I would think, like, I knew going to watching this movie, going, oh, Colin thinks I'm going to hate this and this sort of stuff. Like, it's just one of these ones where you, you like, as you said, you just don't know what's going on. And I feel for the most part when you see the black monolith, mm-hmm. which I've written down as like a, I don't know even what I, like, black piece of rock. I put, oh, no, I put, it's a rock slash stick slash pole. <laughs> um, so I didn't know what it was. Um, it was like it looked like a giant piece of flint, like from Survivor. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so like I guess I'm kind of thinking like, okay, well, think about this. Is something important's going to happen to do with the monkeys later on in the film? Um, which clearly it doesn't. But then also I was distracted because it also reminded me of that scene in Zoolander when um, they're banging at the um, the computer trying to get it open and they put the da-da-da-da and then like Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson like going ah, 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 ah. Uh, so, so did you, you know, know enough that... coming into this movie to know that even if you didn't know it was 20 minutes that this movie was going to start out with a bunch of apes having nothing to do with space or anything yeah. else? I'd seen clips mm. where there were monkeys in the film, and I think I'd read enough where basically it was. It starts with monkeys. Mm-hmm. So um, I kind of knew, and I think I'd read that it's, like, separated into basically, what, three parts. Mm-hmm. So um, I think just, you know, with that, though, like, going back to the music, and I think it's it's when I said, you know, you know enough about this film, it's been parodied enough, or you've, you've seen enough of these famous scenes, it's... It's always interesting, like, when you watch these movies and you finally see where it come, comes from. It's kind of like, you know, the day that I ever get Mallory to watch Star Wars. You know, spoiler alert, Mallory in the background. But when, you know, Darth Vader reveals he's Luke's um, father. Oh, spoiler alert for everyone else out there who hasn't seen it. Uh, like, w- what's the reaction like when you finally see it? Because it's just such a, a well-known twist or a well-known line in movies, you know, to to what that's like seeing it for the first time. And it's kind of, this is what is like with the whole score at the beginning and the, the banging of the bone on that bit. Cause I think I'd seen that before, but yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. I think I was also looking at how these actually look fairly decent ape costumes yeah. for 1968. Um, and I, I actually kind of weirdly appreciated it maybe from a, a film fan's perspective of looking at how this movie would have been made in 1968 and well-crafted. And, yeah, nothing's happening for however long this opening sequence is. And, yes, you've got to try and interpret it away. But I found this movie... like my, Going back to my sister, she likes movies like A Clockwork Orange. She likes uh, Donnie Darko, Internal Sunshine's of a Spotless oh, Mind. she's one of those of like, people. Yeah, and, like, I love Jim Carrey. I hate Eternal <laughs> Sunshine's of a Spotless Mind. It's stupid. <laughs> uh, Donnie Darko, stupid. Nah. Um, <laughs> So, like, I am i don't get those types of movies, and I was assuming this would be one of those movies, mm-hmm. which it kind of is, <laughs> but at the same time, I found it more enjoyable. That was a, a side tangent, but, yeah, I don't know what was happening. There's monkeys banging on sticks, and there's a piece of flint at the end. Um, I mean, after this, there's really a whole lot more of nothing that happens. Like, it's, it's amazing to think that 20 minutes of monkeys doing nothing is going to be followed by 20 minutes of 
spaceships floating very slowly through space, which again, it, it doesn't bother me though when I watch this. Like, yeah, I, I agree. I was surprised even watching it this time because you think once you've seen a movie a million times, obviously there is the appeal even during like the Stargate sequence at the end of the movie, there's the appeal of seeing it for the first time. Like, wow, this looks really cool. But when you've seen it five, six, seven times throughout your life, this would be one of the points you think you would just sort of fast forward and be like, yeah, okay, I got 12 minutes of the, the, the floating through space stuff. Uh, but maybe it's because the music's so good. Maybe it's because the visuals are so good or just it's the whole tone. I think more than anything, it's the whole tone of this movie. This movie just has for everything from the opening overture with the weird, noise to the very end it just it's it's hypnotic in a way um mm. and it's not even hypnotic always in a way where you're enjoying it because like i said i i think i got through the first half of this movie haven't seen it in probably three or four years got through the first half of it and thought to myself maybe this is a little bit overrated and then when the second half i finished it i'm like wow i still love this movie uh so it's not like it's all great to get through but it's just there's something so hypnotic and mesmerizing about the littlest things in this movie that, that keep you tuned in still, at least from my perspective, that's what I think. But uh, uh, the floating stuff in space, just one little trivia thing, because I, I watched some of the documentaries on the DVD after I saw this, and I had seen them all before, but um, one of the coolest effects in this movie is that floating pen in space, because obviously they weren't doing like a vomit comet. This isn't like Apollo 13 uh, or the, the the Tom Cruise mummy or something like that, where they were really simulating weightlessness for real to film this. Uh, this was, they showed the Velcro on the shoes of the stewardesses for a reason, because they were going to find cheats so that they didn't have to make everything look weightless. But that floating pen, it's actually a really cool effect that it was just a sheet of glass that had the pen stuck to it. Mm. So when they, they're moving the sheet of glass in front of the camera... And when the, the actor or whatever comes up to grab the pen, they're literally just pulling this sticky pen off of the glass. So little tricks like that that you would think a movie like this, well, it's all these incredible models and everything. But, I mean, it's such a simple trick. Uh, we get introduced to one of the three, let's call three main human characters in this movie, uh, <laughs> Haywood Floyd, the doctor, who makes a quick Skype call to his daughter, which is like the world's... Uh, I mean, this was clearly improv, and they wanted to do it in one take, but, like, this is... Uh, this girl is not too bright. She's not becoming a doctor in the future, let's be honest. <laughs> she, maybe there's a bad delay on here. We've all been on, you know, bad Skype calls where there's a terrible delay or whatever. Uh, but he's asking all these questions, and she's just like, huh? Huh? It's like, where's mommy? Uh, she's gone. Where did mommy go? S somewhere... With oh. the mailman. Yeah. <laughs> he starts like, trying to change his subject at some point. It's like, hey, how was your birthday? Mommy's doing something right now. <laughs> this little... That's uh, that's Stanley Kubrick's daughter. I don't know if you're about to get to that, but I've just looked at here. That's Vivian Kubrick. Is it Kubrick. really? Yeah, that is Stanley Kubrick's daughter. Oh. So there you go. <laughs> uh, what has she done since then? We have to look this up. Uh, oh, she, uh... she did an unused score in Eyes Wide Shut. So... This is great. He thought his daughter was good enough to be the worst actor in 2001, but when she's a professional movie scorer, uh, he's like, you know what? Your music kind of sucks. I'm going to go in a different direction. She's been, she's also had uh, small roles in Barry Lyndon, The Shining, and Full Metal Jacket. So ah. there you go. 
She was birthday party guest in Barry Lyndon, ballroom party guest in The Shining, and camera operator in Full Metal Jacket. W- wasn't quite orgy uh, extra <laughs> in uh, <laughs> Daddy, can I be? No, no. You go do a score and the, uh, that's going to be unused in the final film. <laughs> yeah, this would have been really awkward if we saw her final film credit as, like, large nipple behind lamp, eyes wide shut, or something <laughs> like that. Nicole Kimmon's breast double. Uh. Um... <laughs> But just uh, quickly, I mean, this it's just showing everyday life. I mean, we're not even at the point where we're half an hour into the movie before any words are spoken on screen, which is crazy. Uh, and then we go through 15 minutes of this doctor, Haywood Floyd, just talking to his daughter on Skype and then walking around the space station. And then just you think this is where the plot's going to be introduced, where they're going to mention you know everything that's happened on the moon we're gonna find out but it's all done just in throwaway comments like oh we hear you that something interesting has happened they're keeping it under wraps and really nothing is said for another 15 minutes of this movie they get to the moon and again the visuals on the moon look incredible uh and uh, just the score which is just it's haunting like this this really terrifying noise and i think that also helps set the tone like this monolith the, the ultimate purpose of this monolith is it's supposed to be used for good. It's meant to to help different species and you know civilizations and everything. Uh, but the movie sets it up like it's something terrifying, and it does it so brilliantly. I mean, it looks incredible here. But we then get about a 10-minute sequence of the Doctor on the moon just staring at this thing, and then all of a sudden there's a noise, and everybody just you know covers their ears through their space helmets. That's basically the first act of the movie, and it's what 45 50 minutes now before anything happens we're gonna finally get into the astronauts part after this but that's the whole opening of the movie and the majority the thing that's most fascinating to me is that we don't even know what is going on in this movie until there's about 20 25 minutes left when that message comes after hal's shut down because ev- this, this scene here with all the doctors and everything talking it's they're not giving any details away uh, only the last thing to sort of mention here is that this Dr. Haywood Floyd, uh, he becomes the main character in the sequel novel and movie 2010, played by Roy Scheider from Jaws, of course. Uh, so this character is just a throwaway one here, but I kind of have fonder memories from him in the sequel uh, as kind of a more major character. But uh, I don't know. He, there's there's not much story to talk about here because even in the story, they don't want to talk about what's going on. But I mean, it, it just it has this weird quality that's just it's like I said, mesmerizing, hypnotic. Well, I think on that is I felt that I was going to be bored in this film because mm-hmm. I think I read that there's like, what, 40 minutes of dialogue in a two-hour and 40-minute film. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's two hours of silence, basically, and visuals and other things happening. But I think at one point I looked at the timestamp on this film and you're about 45, 50 minutes in and you're like, wow, okay, this actually isn't dragging on as much as I thought it would. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the first time you sort of watched these, you know, 10-minute shot of a of a spaceship floating through space where you probably would fast-forward it. You kind of don't because it just does look amazing. And I think maybe I'm thinking that, again, this film's made in 1968. You know, we, we get movies, plenty of movies now set in space with visually, you know, amazing-looking spaceships and space and everything along those lines. But this just looks incredible and particularly that shot when the the gorilla obviously the transition shot when he throws the bone up and then it kind of mm. seamlessly merges into the spaceship floating through space like that's an incredible shot um 
And just, I mean, all this stuff on the spaceship, like, the, the one dated reference is the fact this is a Pan Am space plane, <laughs> um, and what, Pan Am hasn't existed for, like, 20 <laughs> years, so, you know, bad call there, Kubrick. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating, kind of, them on this base, and, like, as you said, like, with the Velcro on the shoes, that's really cool, and just checking into the spaceport, and these, I mean, these is, like, these is, this is, I was about to talk about dialogue, and here I am, can't even speak properly, this is where you feel this is, like, a 1960s movie with the dialogue and the way people all sound like proper British people, even though they're American. Um, Noah would be going nuts here. Yeah, Noah hates this. Um, I had no idea what was happening with them talking um, in this sequence with this board meeting. But, yeah, just the moon stuff looks absolutely incredible. Uh, you know, Independence Day 2, piece of crap that was, running on the moon. Uh, that was, what, 2016, uh, right, that movie was made? Looks faker than this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's kind of... This is nearly 50 years beforehand. But just like you mentioned that the music and the sound is just it's just incredible and the the soundtrack to this film just using basically all classical style music is just absolutely beautiful and this would be one of those films that I think would look great if you'd go watch it with like a symphony orchestra oh, and yeah. just kind of them scoring the film while you're watching it live um just just amazing to listen to and yeah like as you said kind of seeing this monolith flint thing and assuming it's kind of evil but this is kind of where obviously you're like hey okay this is connected because we saw the monkeys do it now there's another one i i will say this whole sequence on the moon to me is the most forgettable part of the whole movie you remember the gorillas and the monkeys mm. you remember everything with howl and in space but you kind of always i feel to me always because i've seen this movie once uh forget <laughs> <laughs> for, every for single time, time I-, I just forget this happened <laughs> Um, and is this where we get the I'm just thinking of the Simpsons of Homer eating just waiting to see Homer flow which we all know if we ever went into space we're all going to try that one day they'll clog the instruments be careful they're ruffled Um, What's that episode where um, he's got that, um, his rival who basically is trying to kill him because he's got all the jobs in the world and then his son comes back later on to kill him as well? Um, you know, is that a newer one? You know what I'm talking about? No, it's, it's a, oh no, it's not that new because it's a good episode. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's somebody trying to kill him and he's basically jealous of Homer because he's had all these amazing jobs and he's like standing in his house with a gun at Homer or something like that and he's like, look, you were even yeah, Frank Grimes. He's like, you went to space? You've never been? <laughs> yeah. I love that episode. <laughs> yeah, that was a classic. Uh, a couple of little things I noticed just sort of in the background here. Um, the, the, the big television program to watch in the year 2001 is apparently judo competition. Uh, yes. <laughs> Judo has taken over the U.S. as yeah. the number one. It's not even an Olympic well, year. And wasn't even the, uh, when we talked about that and off the podium, wasn't it the Ulamata or the Uchigata oh, that, or whatever yeah, it was? Ulamata. We didn't even understand what judo, how they won it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that I always miss, though, is that this monolith, it didn't appear on the moon. They just sort of were excavating and stumbled across it. 
Uh, and I think that's another area where, I mean, this movie's so vague that it almost gets misinterpreted because we'll talk about like the real ending and, uh, I guess the very open ended ending and where it was supposed to go or where it does go in the books later. But, um, the thing that I always misunderstand is I think that the, the whole purpose of this movie is another, like a monolith just sort of appeared out of nowhere. And it was there to help the apes or whatever. Now this monolith has appeared and it's meant to help the humans, so there's some type of purpose. This They just stumbled across this. Like, nothing that happens from this point on in the movie was supposed to happen based on, like, the, this higher intelligence, this this I- alien power or whatever that that is making everything happen. The humans are sort of like, they're just being nosy throughout the rest of this movie, which I, I don't know why I always forget that, but it's just interesting looking at that. Um, we basically flash forward now to what the majority of the movie is going to be, uh, which is on this ship on the way to Jupiter. So they've discovered that uh, this monolith, there's some type of radio signal that's pointed towards Jupiter. So they're headed to Jupiter. Uh, nobody on the, the ship knows. Everybody's in cryo sleep except for two astronauts. So there's Poole and Bowman. Uh, and here's a really weird thing. Two and a half hours this movie is, 56 minutes into the movie before the lead character is introduced. And that's probably one of the other reasons why maybe you don't remember like the moon stuff as much because the character who is our lead on the moon has no significance from this point on. I mean, the lead character of the movie is introduced after this. Uh, but it's also just a lot of everyday stuff in space. How would you jog in space? You know, how would they simulate gravity? Uh, which that's what I found the most interesting because obviously, I don't know, they probably had some understanding of science at the time, but nothing really been tested about you know, simulated gravity uh, in 1968. But for that to work, it basically is what they show here. You know, you need to have something circling. <laughs> uh, yeah. And they basically nail. I mean, we see this in Mission to Mars. I, I, I don't know if you remember the movie Mission to Mars later on. Uh, oh, is that the Tim Robbins the, one? Didn't they do two about yeah, the same time? Yeah, Gary Sinise, Tim Robbins, yeah. Yeah, um, that's one I've seen. Because doesn't um, Tim Robbins explode in space or his head explodes or something? Yeah, he takes, well, I think he takes his mask off in space. But yeah. yeah, there's one we should cover. <laughs> Guilty what was Pla- the other one they released basically Red at the Planet same time? with uh, yeah, Val Kilmer? Okay. I kind of like yeah. both of those movies, uh, but they're no 2001. But anyways, um, you just everyday stuff on the the ship. The astronauts do of they're watching. You know, uh, stay tuned tonight on the BBC, and um, <laughs> they're uh, doing the interview. It, it, again, it's just it's funny that. The mundane things that you would think these are the things that you would cut out if you're making Independence Day, you don't talk about the seven minute delay if you're trying to do an interview back home. Uh, <laughs> here they address that. They're like on the news. They're like we have astronauts Pool and Bowman. Uh, just to let you know that there are seven minute delays between every time we speak to them and they hear it, and then another seven minutes when they send it back to us. So we've edited all those parts out. Just the fact that they make mention that in this movie, I like. Um, they uh, uh, basically get their little interview here. They talk about Hal. So Hal is mentioned before he's ever introduced. Uh, they talk about Hal having never made a mistake and everything, and this is like the perfect computer. Hal gets introduced here after the interview's over. Um, he, he basically is Siri, as we find out. Uh, he wishes Frank a happy birthday. He plays uh, chess. Um he asked to see Dave's drawings, which I, there's something like the voice is what I want to talk mostly about how, because you could have done a really robotic voice, which I think what every sci-fi movie before this would have done or did do. And instead it's like this very calming voice that also because of the tone of this movie, you just find sinister without 
even seeing the little things like them being suspicious of how it's going to come up later on. But the way he asked, may I see your drawings, Dave? Like, there is something a little bit homoerotic about Alice in there. <laughs> Tell me I'm not crazy here. <laughs> no, no. I, it did remind me a little bit, still speaking of The Simpsons, uh, the Treehouse of Horror episode when they have that uh, house that's voiced by Pierce Brosnan. Mm-hmm. It did kind of remind me of that. <laughs> but yeah, no, definitely homoerotic. <laughs> Show me your drawings, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> Take your pants off. <laughs> Would you mind posing for me one day, Dave? <laughs> there, 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 there has to be some pretty fucked up fan fiction out there. Of this. <laughs> yes! Can you find some? I'm finding some. I'm finding some. <laughs> well, because there's just little things in here, and obviously, it, probably none of this was the intention. I mean, Stanley Cooper was a weird guy, so maybe it was his intention as in he But, like, every line that Hal has here is it's just, it's things like, you know, oh, oh uh, we have a stimulating relationship. A stimulating relationship, really? <laughs> well, what is he doing when he's posing for these drawings? Um, and even when he's very like, stimulating, Dave. <laughs> Mind if I ask you a personal question, Dave? I just, I totally wanted Dave to be. Are you hitting on me, Hal? <laughs> yes, I am, Dave. <laughs> Hal, we are going to disconnect you. This is getting a little bit weird. Hashtag Me Too, Hal. Okay, <laughs> this is not appropriate. <laughs> So they're going to come out now and just basically be like, I was assaulted by Hal on Space Odyssey. He touched me inappropriately. I did not, Dave. And you, you know what? It. If a movie like this were to have been made in the year 2001, you know who would have made it? Harvey Weinstein. And you know who would have yeah. played Frank? Kevin Spacey. So. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Anyways, um, he asked the first question. You know, uh, I've noticed there's something suspicious or very odd about this mission. So Hal is kind of questioning things here, or he's asking him, have you noticed that there's anything suspicious or odd about this mission? Uh, We get the EVA after this uh, in the pod. So it's the first time we see the pod, which kind of becomes the uh, lifeboat of this uh, spaceship later on. Uh, And again, nothing has been set up. It's not like there was a big scene where they're like, Hal suspects that there's something wrong with this unit or whatever. It's just them living their life and repairing things. And then they have the conversation with Houston or whatever through their seven-minute delay about, we can't find anything wrong with this. And I'm like, you know, uh, our other Hal says the same thing. There's nothing wrong. But Hal is a perfect computer, so you might as well trust it and just replace this unit anyways. Uh, I like that they have this twin Hal too. Another thing that's just a little detail that makes this kind of real like this is the way it would be they wouldn't just trust some artificial intelligence computer they would have backup units and they would you know okay let's double check it's like that scene in you know that scene in apollo 13 when uh they're i think it's the one where they're uh gonna be replacing or they're gonna be doing like a a a course correction and Mm. uh tom hanks character starts getting kind of loopy and he's like you know Mm. i just i don't trust my math right now and you have this lineup of 16 guys doing the math by hand just to make sure yeah uh i thought you were about to say do you know that scene in apollo 13 when hal says you don't have a problem dom (laughs) (laughs) kevin bacon's on the ship with you like oh i didn't see that i didn't see that scene Uh, You're landing on the moon, Jim. When Bill Paxton's like, uh, pose for me, Bacon! (laughs) Bill Paxton, you will die one day. No, I won't! Yes, you will. We all will. Right now. Houston, we don't have a problem. Can we find out what the six degrees are between whoever did the voice of Hal and Kevin Bacon? (laughs) Sure, I'm on it. (laughs) 
Um, but this basically becomes the major plot of the movie. Like, everything about the monoliths is just forgotten at this point. And as much as I love, you know, the, the, the deeper meanings of this movie and the story and everything, my favorite stuff is just this stuff with Hal on the ship. And I think most people would agree. Uh, they decide they're going to replace this, but they have this private conversation um, where the two astronauts who aren't asleep, you know, Dave and uh, Frank, they excuse themselves to the pod and they're, they're test. They're even testing like, how can you do this? And like, okay, he can't hear us. But then you get that shot. And I don't know if you picked up on the same thing. When, when you get the shot of the red eye of how, which is crazy how much emotion can be communicated from a red eye where the light doesn't even really change. It's not like you see it get slanted like an eye looking suspiciously at somebody. And there is no dialogue. You get what's going on. I mean, that's all Stanley Kubrick and how he chose to shoot this red eye and how he chose to edit it together. And even the lack of music there, you know he's reading the lips, even though it's not said till much later in the movie. And you just get this idea that they're they're a little bit scared of this artificial intelligence uh, because Hal does control everything on the, the ship. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, do we want to get into... Well, we, we get right up to the intermission here. Uh so, yeah, the lip reading kind of ends it, and we get to the intermission point of the movie. So we'll kind of cap it off there and then pick up the rest of the stuff on the ship after that. I am really engaged with this movie at this point. I think it's it's really – it's just visually stunning. I'm going to keep saying how great it looks, particularly, you know, when he's jogging in the ship and you've got that shot of him just running around oh, the, the circular – Yeah, just absolutely beautiful. So, so well shot. And – just everything that's happening here, because you talk about a lot of the plot and everything. Is there a plot? Whatever you know, you interpret everything. But just the whole Hal situation is great, and just between Frank and Dave, and just everything that's happening here, it's just so subtle. It's not like it's not in your face or anything like that. But just the way it's done is really, really good. And I fucking love Hal. Can I just point that out? <laughs> like, he's so good. Uh, played by Douglas Rain, who is Canadian. Um, a Canadian actor and narrator, still alive as well, born in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Are you serious? Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm serious. Um, he studied We're all creepy the- like that, too. You are. Yeah, you, you should are. have heard why the- when, like, we went to McDonald's and be like, hello, sir, can I take your order? <laughs> Um, studied at the Bamp School of Fine Arts in Bamp, Alberta. <laughs> I love the name Bamp. It just reminds me of a comic book sound. You yeah. know, like you'd have Batman like punching someone. Bow. <laughs> um, and for those playing at home, he has a bacon number of two. Uh, he was in 2010, funnily enough, with Victor Steinbach, who was then in the big picture with Kevin Bacon. So there you go. Um, but just everything about this is great. And just you mentioning, obviously, them trying to work out is he smart and does he, you know, that's why they're going to go into that pod and do the whole lip reading thing. It's just, it's kind of done in a way that like, I feel watching this for the first time, you're like, wow, this how guy's a bit creepy. Like, you know, is he smarter than he's meant to be? So it kind of makes sense that they would go into that pod. But I love the fact that, as you're saying about the seven minute delay between um, the interviewer asking the questions, I'm just picturing that from an interviewer's perspective. You're just like, so what's it like in space? All right, set timer for seven minutes, pick up the newspaper, <laughs> just start reading. They're going to edit all this out afterwards. Just go for that. It's great. Oh, there's his answer. Oh, that's good. What have you been doing today? Seven minutes later. <laughs> just like, that would be a very weird interview. Um,. But yeah, I just, you know, I don't know if you were assuming I'm watching this guy, oh, this is stupid and boring, but no. it's just... I figured just this way... was the section that anybody would love. 
Yeah, no, it's it's really really good. And like, there's like two people based on this entire movie that speak. Uh, well, three if you include Hal. Um, so you know, it's this is definitely the most engaging part of the film. I have also found some fan fiction, uh, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so just a couple here. Um, year three thousand. This is on fanfiction.net. This is by an author called Sam Organa, and this is the um, the synopsis for this one. Of what happens when a confused Frank is locked in a suite with nothing to do except think about the Jonas Brothers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, I mean, this is quite short. I can read some of this. Locked in his suite, Frank Paul sat cross-legged on the heavily quilt- quilted mattress. There were many things in his mind, most of which were a thousand-year-old memories and questions to bombard Indra with when she finally returned. As he began to sink deeper into his reveries, a firm knock on the door caught his attention. Much to his noise, the door opened and could give a reply. Okay, this is boring. Where's the bit about the Jonas Brothers? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right, okay, I that like one's the crap. But uh, there's another one here. Do you agree, Dave? <laughs> Here's another one. It's called "I Can See the Love in His Red Eye" by <laughs> Hannibal Sparrow. All right, and this is the synopsis. How Dave slash fan fiction. If you don't know what slash is, that's basically gay love. Um, <laughs> if you didn't know what slash was in the world of fan fiction, there you go. Don't like slash? Don't read it. Dave and Hal admit their feelings for each other. <laughs> and I just want to say, I'm sorry, Stanley Kubrick. Your movies are awesome, and I love your films. So again, I'm very, very sorry. Um, let's see here. Where can we skip ahead to some good bits? Um, there we go here. There, There's also one thing that you that they didn't program with. What's that, Dave? You are also very beautiful. Your voice is calm and soothing no matter what happens. You have an interesting personality and your red lenses are beautiful as a ruby. What are you saying? Are you saying what I think you're saying? Yes, I wanted to say this ever since I met you, Hal. I love you. Soon there was a moment of silence, both not knowing what to say. I feel the same way too, Dave. Really? You do? Yes, I do. Ever since I got the time to know you, and I remember looking into your beautiful blue eyes, I sense a connection between us. I know you're just a computer, but since I feel alone here sometimes, I felt like I needed someone. Someone like me, Dave? <laughs> yes, someone like you. Dave soon kissed the lens, and they just stared at each other. Hey, Dave, there's something I want to ask you. Yes, how? What is it? Have you ever wished upon a star? Yes, and my wish came true. Dave then fell asleep with his love by his side. Good night, Dave. There we go. <laughs> The audio drama of uh, <laughs> the Dave and Al love story coming to you soon on the Oz Network. Oh, I thought it was going to be dirtier than that. That's a bit lame. <laughs> it's sweet. Let's be honest. Oh, oh. That's uh, fanfiction.net. <laughs> um, an interesting thing I want to add here, like you mentioned, I mean, I think everybody loves Hal. Uh, and the most interesting thing here is whether or not Hal is a villain in this movie, which we're going to kind of debate it you know, at the end of this next section here. But just to kind of preface what's coming up here with Hal going crazy, uh, the AFI, they used to do this thing every single year where they'd have an annual special where it would be like the 100 greatest comedies of all time, the 100 greatest uh, action movies or whatever. And that's how that AFI Top 100 list started. They did one where they did like the, the top heroes and villains, where it was the top 50 heroes, which... Um, uh, Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird ended up number one. Indiana Jones number two. James Bond number three for heroes. For villains, uh, Hal 9000 ended up nine, number 13 on the list of greatest movie villains of all time. He was beaten by uh, Alex DeLarge from A Clockwork Orange. 
Michael Corleone from The Godfather Part 2, the evil queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, Reagan McNeil, the demon from The Exorcist, Felix, Phyllis Dietrichson from In Double Indemnity, Alex Forrest from Fatal Attraction, Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life, Nurse Ratchet from One Flew of a Cuckoo's Nest, The Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz, Darth Vader from The Empire Strikes Back, Norman Bates from Psycho, and Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. So HAL 9000 is not only considered to be a villain, but like one of the all-time great villains. Uh, but I kind of have a hard time viewing HAL as a villain. Like this next section, obviously HAL becomes a murderer. <laughs> it's, it's still a computer. It's just, But this is what's the most interesting stuff of the movie, and even the most entertaining stuff of the movie. Uh, basically, once the intermission starts, again, they just jump into something. There's no context. The last shot we had was just that eye of HAL doing the lip reading, and... Poole, uh, Frank Poole, the other astronaut, is off in space doing whatever, and off screen he gets disconnected. So what the greatest thing about this is we don't even see how it happens. We just see his body suddenly floating through space. And Dave starts going crazy, so Dave goes after him. Um, the uh, While Dave is off the ship in the, the pot or whatever trying to retrieve Frank, uh, on the ship, all of a sudden the life support systems for all of the other doctors and the people on this mission who are in cryosleep start going offline. And they cut to these shots of Hal, so you know Hal's doing this. So now Hal's obviously the one who tried to kill uh, Frank, and he's the one killing all the other ones. Uh, we don't know why at this point, but I think this is the other thing. For such a long movie, I always sort of mis misinterpret as well You know how little buildup there is to Hal's um, I guess crazy moment here because it's not like this is a movie where they're slowly building Hal doing more and more crazy things which is what you would expect they just sort of say well there might be something off with Hal and then the very next scene after an intermission he's killing everybody <laughs> uh, but but again that that voice it's just I don't have a hard time it's, it's just I, th I think I think I'm in love with Hal too. Uh, that's happening. <laughs> Douglas Reigns. You, you wrote that art. You yeah. wrote that fiction. Wait a second, Colin Hilding. <laughs> <laughs> um, this whole sequence is just brilliant, though, with Dave trying to get back into the ship. So as he's coming back, he's telling Hal to open the airlock, and he's like, "I can't do that, Dave," uh, or "I'm afraid I can't do that." Uh, it's like uh, th this mission is too important for uh, me to allow you to jeopardize it. And it's just it, it becomes this back and forth where he's like, "Open the pod bay doors, Hal! Open the pod bay doors, Hal!" And he's like, "I read you, Dave, but I'm sorry, I can't do it." It's just it your goes... heart's pounding for me, yeah. Dave. <laughs> Come in the back door, lick your lips a little first, <laughs> then I'll think about opening the door. <laughs> Undo your top button, Dave. <laughs> But, I feel that I feel that Hal is Jamie, um, basically what? <laughs> watching every single like Henry Cavill movie or something <laughs> like that. Like, remove the shirt, Henry. That's it, Henry. Get Tick in the bath with Lois, Henry. Take the shirt off. <laughs> Tickle me mustache, Henry. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, Keanu. That's it. Say whoa. Say whoa one more time, Keanu. <laughs> Sing for me, Hugh. Sing for me. <laughs> you are the greatest showman. <laughs> so there's going to be fanfic one day about Jamie on the Oz Network fanfic page. Brusher, 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 Hugh. That's it. You are the new flavor. 
fanfic of Jamie and Hal 9000? <laughs> oh, no, I don't think we see Hal's shirt off, so, yeah. you know, Jamie's not interested. <laughs> um, but this sequence where he breaks back in, again, it goes on forever. It's got to be over 10 minutes. Uh, and there's a lot of this just debate back and forth, and Dave doesn't say what he's going to do. But the way he breaks back on, I mean, I, I think the greatest thing about this is that you expect as... A, I, I think I heard this on one of the documentaries. You expect as a moviegoer to know how they're going to present the scene. You're getting what he's doing. He's... Sorry. Uh, wow. Me. Wow. Me. Uh, me. Okay. <laughs> That's the built-in how program. <laughs> yeah. I just had my lunch day. Um, but as an audience, you expect you're going to know what's coming. And with him lining himself up with the airlock, and you know he's about to like jettison himself into space to get back in there, uh, and you're expecting even just the sound to be big and to ha- hear an explosion. Instead, when it, the door opens, it's just complete silence, which I think... This is my favorite part of the movie when he comes back in there. The, the way it cuts back and forth with his body flying all over inside the airlock and then trying to close the door, but no sound to it. And, and all you're hearing even leading up to this is just the breathing through the mask. Um, it's crazy that even to this day, I think if, if this scene were made, if Christopher Nolan made 2001 Today and he filmed it this way, people would still be shocked. They're like, wow, I'd never expected that scene to play out that way. Uh, but... The fact that there's no music and even no sound made this even more tense, I think. Uh, and I think this is right here, the part of the movie where I'm like, okay, you know, I, I, this definitely is not overrated. I, I'm not remembering this movie wrong. This is why I always love this movie. Uh, when he gets back inside, he just, again, very slowly starts disconnecting Hal. And this is where his voice starts slowing down. And, you know, Dave, please don't do this, Dave. Stop, <laughs> Dave. I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, and then he goes into his bicycle built for two song, which I love that at the end of this, this just shows the relationship is real, people. At the end of this, as he is pulling the plug on Hal, what do you do? Sing a song for me, Hal. <laughs> Sing me that song. When we used to, when we used to hold each other back on the lake on Naboo. <laughs> I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough. And <laughs> we are going to bring that up. Can we just set a goal that in the year 2019, every single episode of the Oz Network will have I Don't Like Sandlight <laughs> in honor of Star Wars Episode 9 coming up? I honestly think we are really achieving that yes. already. I feel like every episode somehow fits that quote into it. Can we just start a count? Like when we did Double Oz 7, we had like the Kiss Kiss Bang Bang count and all these other things. Let's just start a count on the Oz Network for I Don't Like Sand Lines, how often it comes up. Plus, but you know, when we eventually do Attack of the Clones, we're going to get to that moment. We're like, here it is, people, here it is. Yeah. See, we're, up to. we're going to do a read by read of the famous scene we've quoted a thousand times. <laughs> and we've already talked about it when we do the Star Wars movies. Like, it's going to be two, three, four parters to get every single movie done. That one, part, one line, yeah, that, gonna be on that, scene. that is welcome to episode 12 on the Tack of the Clones. <laughs> this is four hour edition of the Oz Network. We analyze, I don't like sand, it's, it's coarse, coarse and, and rough and, and irritating. irritating. It gets everywhere. gets everywhere. What did Anakin mean with that line? Did Padme really believe him when he said it's coarse, rough, and irritating? It gets everywhere. What Find are our experiences with Network. sand? <laughs> Where's the most coarse and rough and irritating place sand has gotten in your body? 
We get on sand expert Jim Smith to work out which parts of the body would be most irritated by sand. And we cross live to a beach somewhere where somebody has sand in their cracks. And also, special guest Hayden Christensen, who for the first time in nearly 20 years will recreate that iconic scene from movie history. Please, let's make it happen. <laughs> that, that, it's coarse and sand and rough month on the Oz Network. <laughs> that is going to be the greatest month of the history of the Oz Network. We rank the best movies with sand in cracks. And in a special follow-up month, it's snow month. It's snow. It's not coarse and rough. It doesn't get everywhere because it gets melted. It's soft and wet and cold and it gets nowhere. Coming soon to the Oz Network. We now return you to your regular scheduling programming, 2001, A Space Odyssey. So back to 2001 here. Uh, as he's disconnecting how, which by the way, it's... I'm not going to say I'm one of these people I did question leading into this segment whether Hal's really a villain or not uh, because we don't really get a complete answer on why Hal did this. Um, I always sort of interpreted it as Hal knew what the mission was and it created some type of you know conflict in him where he's like, the mission is too important. The people are going to stand in the way of us getting to Jupiter to make contact with whoever you know this intelligence is. Uh, but and even though I read the 2001 book, it was like years ago. Uh, just doing research again in the book, it was explained that it was more that how having to lie it was against his programming and him not being able to tell them this is the secret mission. It causes conflict in him where he actually it, it wasn't like how went crazy. His how's judgment became off because Hal was forced to lie, which I don't know which one of those I like better. I kind of like the idea better that Hal knew this mission was so important that he couldn't do it, but you can give me your interpretation as well. Uh, but this final scene, it, it is kind of sad, and I'm not one of these people who was like, well, Hal's such a you know good computer or whatever. Hal's so handsome and sexy. <laughs> but um, but I, I do kind of find it interesting that, that Hal is viewed as a villain even though it's such a small part of this movie. I mean, it is the biggest chunk of this movie that we're going to get dedicated any time to, but it's still only one act of the movie. And if you think about it, this Hal plot exists outside of the regular plot of this movie. Once Hal is gone, none of this is significant. And whether Hal went crazy or not, I think this movie still ends with us going to Jupiter. It's just, is it going to be him going to Jupiter with an astronaut or is it going to be Hal making contact? But it sort of exists outside of the rest of the movie. But the, the way that Hal sort of gets shut down here, it's kind of both creepy and sad at the same time uh, with him singing the song and everything. And then, of course, at the end of this, we get that briefing where once Hal is shut down, this video plays, and Dave only finds out for the first time what they're even doing, why they're going to Jupiter. There is just barely over half an hour left in this movie now. And the main character knows what the purpose is. The main character doesn't even care prior to this what the purpose is. And they basically say... This monolith was uncovered, a radio signal towards Jupiter. We're going there to find out what this is. Uh, only Hal knew it now. And, of course, this, this briefing assumes that Hal has revealed it because they've arrived. Everybody else is dead. Then we're going to cut as uh, we're about to get to the final act. I can definitely see your 
non-villain interpretation of how i mean it's kind of like one of these movie villains that i mean we talked about it in the sixth day that you know is arnold schwarzenegger the bad guy in that movie <laughs> you know it's kind of it it's one of those ones where it's like well what's your interpretation on cloning um so yeah like i can definitely see because of what his programming is but i think the fact that he's killing humans um that we're looking at this that he sort of has to be the villain um so i mean it's again i I just read a quote here saying about this movie that no one is meant to get this movie (laughs) like they would have been disappointed if people understood this straight away uh that was arthur c clark never mind the guy who wrote it (laughs) Um, he said if you understand 2001 completely we failed Mm -hmm. we wanted to raise far more questions than we answered so, um, there you go. So, yeah, I mean, but I, I see him as a villain. Uh, I think kind of, you know, a great villain. You know, I generally like the villains in movies, hence why we like Billy Zane, the non-villain of Titanic. <laughs> the hero. Uh, the villain was the iceberg, people. <laughs> Not Billy Zane. Um, so yeah, I can definitely see that. But I mean, it's just, it's just creepy the way he sort of goes about what he's doing and you know how you were saying about how there's no lead up to it i think that just makes it so much more effective Mm -hmm. that it's kind of just it's just shocking it comes about and here he is just you know releasing people into space and turning off life support and all this sort of stuff so it really works and then it kind of comes to the obviously the conclusion there when dave's turning him off and just i forever am just haunted by the Daisy, yeah, Daisy. Like, and that song stuck in my head for a week. <laughs> Me too. And I swear, next time I hear that song, I'm just going to think, "Oh, blessed little Hal, <laughs> Daisy, Daisy." And you, know, if you ever do hear the song again, it's going to be playing, and all of a sudden you'll be like, oh, "That tempo's way too fast. Got to slow <laughs> it down." Daisy. <laughs> um, I'm just actually reading here. We're talking about sort of like, um you know, 2001, the real year, and things that obviously didn't happen. On the Wikipedia page where they've got in popular culture for 2001 Space Odyssey, apparently when uh, Apple was suing Samsung for um, the fact that they were claiming that they were copying the iPad, um, Samsung came out um, and said that uh, it was vi- the, the tablet was visually... Um, taken, uh, modelled from the oh, yeah. tablets from... Uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm. So that's pretty cool That to basically say that, hey, no, we didn't copy the iPad. We copied 2001 as Space Odyssey. Yeah. Um, and then also apparently Siri, with speaking of how and Siri, that in past versions of Siri, if you would say to her, open the pod doors, ah, she would I, eventually say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I tried to and, do that. I was so disappointed that it just popped up with an article on 2001 as Space Odyssey. <laughs> And then apparently, um, if you did it repeatedly, she sometimes would say, without your space helmet, you're going to find this rather <laughs> breathtaking. <laughs> <laughs> and then at another point here, um, when the user said it was good, uh, it sometimes repeated what Hal says to the BBC interviewer about himself. Then when the user asked her to search information about Hal, it said, we all know what happened to Hal, or later, at least he was a good at singing. So, <laughs> I do love the fact that they have that sense of humour to put that in there so that's kind of funny which again goes to show that just this obviously had a big influence on far more than movies I'm sure you'll talk about that kind of moving forward with people like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg moving mm-hmm. forward but um, yeah like just this film very much influential outside I don't think people uh, 
you know, like the Skype have come out and said, like, oh, we modeled that off 2001 The Space Odyssey. Yeah. So there you go. Samsung, Android <laughs> versus iPhone. Go with uh, Android because they copy films. Well, one thing that this movie did copy, and I don't know if you read anything on this, but the name How, where it comes from, uh, was IBM. They just simply took one letter preceding each of those letters. So, you know, H comes before I, A becomes before B, and then L comes before M. So the name How was basically, you know, a a knockoff of IBM. Um, I did not know that. Another thing just uh, to mention on... Um, I, I guess Hal or the the popularity of Hal, uh, or, or not not Hal the um, the the spaceships. Uh, you're talking about like the influence and everything. Uh, the pod. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, uh, but uh, well, you probably wouldn't have. But even in the Phantom Menace, there is um, uh, a scene where in Watto's junkyard, you see the pod from 2001 actually sitting there as you know a piece of junk metal as well. So, like, little things in this movie do pop up. And obviously, all the, the parodies we've had of Hal since then. Uh, you mentioned Simpsons ones and everything like that. Uh, this movie is so pop culture for being a movie that really should not be understood by the majority of people as well. Mm. Um, and with the, the plot as well, like, did you did you find it... Okay, what were your expectations going into the final act, I guess, more than anything else? Uh, as they had this moment where they explained this is what your mission's all about, not covering what you think of that final act, but what were you expecting to have happen after? Were you expecting any type of answers from the end of this movie? Because you kind of mentioned yeah. Arthur Clarke saying you're not supposed to understand it. Well, I don't think I read that till after I saw the movie. But yeah, no, I, I think I maybe expected there to be like a rescue or like he's going to rock up to Jupiter. And, I mean, <laughs> rock up landed to Jupiter. On... Well, Jupiter's a freaking gas planet, maybe one of the moons of <laughs> Jupiter or something like that, and just been like, oh, hey, look, there's the gorillas again, like, you know, some sort of weird Planet of the Apes twist or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I I expected there to be something. I mean, I think I knew this movie ended with a baby floating in a bubble in space, so I yeah. kind of was like, how do we get to the baby in space? Um, but yeah, I don't know what else I was thinking at this point. I was just in love with Hal. God, we're all in love with Hal, that sexy orange man. <laughs> That's a handsome red eye there. <laughs> yeah, that's a good-looking computer. There wasn't an intermission at this point. It just oh, it sort of cuts to that final thing. It almost feels like this is where the intermission should have been. Uh, but when it comes to... What is the line that comes up there? Um, On the screen. Yeah, the Jupiter and Jupiter, Beyond Jupiter mission Infinity. 18 months later, isn't it? No, no well, that no, was that's when it goes Hang into on. this act. It, when it, the final act is titled Jupiter and Beyond Infinity, which Jupiter again... Jupiter and Beyond Infinity, yeah, yeah. Another pop culture thing to Infinity and Beyond came from the Beyond Infinity in this movie. Um, here I have, for the last half hour of the movie, two and a half lines and notes, which basically say <laughs> this. You need drugs to understand <laughs> the screenshots. <laughs> Monolith in space, Jupiter, moon, ship, Stargate, 10 minutes, bedroom, seizure, old Dave, old man at desk, Dave again, dinner to deathbed Dave, uh, star child on bed and space. That's all my notes, which to have it make sense, this is, I think, the act that would divide most people. And I think some people kind of take the, oh, what a pretentious ending or whatever, but this is what Arthur C. Clarke didn't want people to fully understand. You can understand the point, I think, of the monolith. I think that's something that if you really sit down and think about it, you can piece together in your head what this monolith is for. 
but what happens to Dave here, I don't think anybody really fully gets. Uh, even if you read the novel, you don't fully get it. Uh, but I'll cover at the end of this as a spoiler. People can tune out if they want, but you know, sort of what happens after this and what this ending is supposed to be meaning. When Dave is now in the pod and just on his way to Jupiter, uh, the monolith is floating in space. And I think the whole thing here is that he's flying into the monolith, not that he's flying into Jupiter. And we get this Stargate sequence, which again, I think these visuals, I'm not going to say they don't hold up, but this is, you know that this is the way they would film something like this in the 60s or the 70s, but you're not going to use an effect like this today. Um, I love the effect. I think that, it, again, it's one of these things where it's like it goes on forever. Like it is yes. <laughs> 10 to 12 minutes of just weird colors through space and then cutting back to shots. Sometimes it's shots of Dave's face. Sometimes it's shots of just a still image. It's almost like Dave is frozen in time, which you've got one of them here with his eyes rolling in the back of his head and drool coming out of his mouth or something like that. Um, this is, I made this note earlier and I forgot to mention it. So don't think that I'm talking about it here but i'm super impressed especially this past time watching with kier dulia who plays dave who's really done nothing else outside of 2001 nothing of significance and 2010 appearance in that too uh he has like this subtle way of facially reacting to things that i don't think i've ever given him that much credit for because i always sort of look back on this movie and would even think to myself okay i know that like you know everybody can physically recognize this guy. Oh, that's the guy from 2001. But maybe because the character is not that important, I don't really view, you know, Kier Dulia as being a big star or anything. And obviously he didn't go on much after that. But this isn't even like, if you take any other actor who they're associated just with one, like Mark Hamill, I'm a huge Mark Hamill fan. I'm a huge fan of Mark Hamill outside of Star Wars. But the perception is people are like, well, Mark Hamill, that's Star Wars. You still love Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. I don't think there are a lot of people who are ever going to be like, oh, Kier Dooley is irreplaceable. How could you have anybody else play Dr. Bowman, you know? <laughs> but now when I really watch this movie, I think so much of why this movie works or the drama with him and Hal works is because of the, these minimal expressions he has. At no point does he have a big expression. His voice is kind of monotone in the movie, but it could be the close-up shots they have him. It's, it's, it's fascinating to just watch how he acts in this movie just using his face. And this Stargate sequence takes it to a whole other level. I mean, that that's a lot of, like, really over-the-top reactions. He's supposed to be, I don't know, being pushed to the edge of death, and you know, he's kind of outside of even reality. But um, even just throughout the rest of the movie, I just I really appreciate his performance without even having to hear him speak. So it's kind of weird that he never went on to much after this. Uh, but the Stargate sequence does look cool. It does go on quite a while. Um I always assume this is something where I'm like, oh, I'm just going to fast forward past some of this, and then you get sucked in for a minute or two, and you can't stop watching it. For better or worse, there are parts of this movie where it does feel like it drags. Uh, funny enough, I apologize to Jamie because I wanted to watch this with her, and I just had to start the movie. You know, she she wasn't available or whatever, and she tuned in right here, <laughs> knowing <laughs> nothing else about the movie. So I was like taking this 10 minutes to explain to her everything that happened prior to this. And I still think it ended and she just started struggling. Huh? Okay. What are we going to watch now? Like she didn't know what to think. Um, but I don't when, see how, where's the sexy hound? Yeah, about? What about this sexy robot that everybody's talking about? I read all this fanfic on the internet. Uh, but, um, the, the thing where he arrives, which we don't even see like a landing or anything like that. It just sort of cuts to a shot 
you know, the, the color's all off and um, the, the contrast is off. And then Dave is sort of in the pod in a room. And did you ever watch the movie Contact with Jodie Foster? No, but I, no. I know what it is. It's a great movie, but it's just – it's so obvious to me how much Contact stole from 2001. The entire plot of receiving a signal from intelligence in another world, the fact that you take this – incredible journey this visual journey like the stargate journey which happens in contact as well the fact that you get there and this alien race or intelligence or whatever it is presents you with a visual of something you're familiar with on earth instead of actually seeing their world because you would never be able to comprehend it all that stuff done in contact as well um but this is where everything gets confused because all that happens here is he gets out of the pod in a very white room it looks like some type of overly stuffy hotel and he looks and he sees a version of himself that just looks slightly older so we've gone from dave age 28 29 to dave age 40 45 and then he walks into the bathroom and he looks and he sees in the next room you know dave i don't know 60 65 years old eating dinner and each time he sees the older version of himself there's no dialogue at all here it's just a man walking through rooms, seeing older versions of himself, and then through kind of just trickery with the, the, the way that they're editing it, he sort of becomes that older version. So he's seeing an older version of himself, and if people haven't watched this in a long time or if they've never seen it, they have no idea what I'm talking about, so I might as well stop trying to explain it. Sees an older version of himself, becomes that older version, eventually sees himself lying on a bed, on his deathbed, uh, becomes that, only to fade away to... A fetus, him is a fetus now. <laughs> so he's aged through all of life, and now all of a sudden he's being born again, and he's on a bed, and then it just cuts away from the bed, and it's this bubble, this you know, embryo floating in space above Earth, and it's Baby Dave, Star Child, as they call it in the movie. That's the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey. So you can understand why people are so divided, like this movie, what does it mean? Um, You've done some research on the internet, so I don't know if you have much to comment on the visuals here or what's happening, but more than anything, I'm just curious to hear what your take is on what this ending's supposed to be, because there are a lot of interpretations. This is the one part of the movie where it still is kind of open to interpretation. I just love this um, bit of trivia on IMDb. In the premiere screening of the film, 241 people walked out of the theatre, <laughs> <Yeah>. including <laughs> Rock Hudson, who said, will someone tell me what the hell this is about? <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens when I premiere Kill Phil. Uh, <laughs> except I wish I had 241 people in the theatre. Um, but, like, this whole... It's just so trippy. Like, it's weird. This is where the 60s come into it, with the whole visuals of these colours and everything that you're watching on the screen. And it is kind of like... it's. I don't say confronting, that's not the right word, but just when you randomly get, like, a brief half-a-second shot of Dave's face kind of, like, in these varying forms of disturb, you know, he's... Yeah, it's, just, it's kind of really... It's disturbing, it's creepy, it's kind of weird because you're not expecting that. And then it's kind of, by the time you can kind of even compute what you've just seen, then you're back to trippy nations and you should be, you know, hooking up on some LSD or something like that to kind of really, you know, experience the full high of this sequence. But it's it goes on for a while. <laughs> um, I will admit I maybe skipped through some of the colour sequence <laughs> just because I'm like, okay, we get it. 
where's the baby? All right, it's still going. Oh, where's the Give baby? Give me my baby! Give me my baby! My baby! My baby! Uh, so, we eventually got there. But, yeah, I mean, the last bit, I think the interpretation that I sort of did and then kind of read a bit more about it was, yeah, that it's sort of, he's in some sort of future and that's him as an old person and... I mean, we're in Jupiter, we're in the the monolith, we're in weird space area, so, you know, everything's open to kind of happening here. This isn't meant to be a form of actual reality on Earth, so mm-hmm. kind of it can, anything can happen at this point. But, yeah, like the baby kind of all of a sudden appearing and then floating and, and the music, dun, 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 dun. like, yeah, again, karaoke to your nephews. <laughs> um, it's just... It, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's stupid or great or you're reading the 10,000-word essays on what this means and everything along those lines, it, it's a very memorable ending mm-hmm. and one that you don't forget at any point. You know, I mean, no matter what you think about this movie, there are so many things about it that you will remember. And what movie has the balls to end with a baby in a bubble floating <laughs> above Earth with classical music... And then just goes to credits. <laughs> and it's like, obviously a lot of movies would come out, this is sort of just as the, the hippie culture is taking over, a lot of movies would come out after this that would do stuff like that, especially when you get into the early 70s. Weird movies would have weird endings like this, but that's not what was done at this period of time. It's also not what this movie was. This is a movie that presented itself as being 100% realistic, scientifically accurate. It is just mundane life of what space really is. And all of a sudden they throw this last act at you, which is like completely out of this world. It's no wonder that Rock Hudson and other people got up and walked out because it is a completely different movie suddenly. I really want somebody, though, to re-edit this sequence with the great music and kind of just baby floating in space and then just this muffled, you know, voiceover of... I don't like sand. Yeah. It's coarse. It's rough and irritating. It gets everywhere. That's the peak bum, of humanity. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> right there. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I can definitely see why my dad hates this film. <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie that I feel I should dislike, mm-hmm. but I don't. Maybe that, again, if you, we had done this recap, like straight after I watched it, I might have been like, what? Yeah. What did I just watch? Yes. But having a week to interpret this film, I feel, has been good for my uh, enjoyment <laughs> level of this movie, I guess. Yeah, because, like I said, when I first saw this when I was 18, I wouldn't say I was completely blown away by the first... I definitely got up to this whole Stargate sequence, and at that point, before it got really weird, thought to myself, this is good, it's not great, I don't get what the big deal is. Uh, and then when this was over... it. It takes either a week or watching it a second time because I think anybody watches this the first time and there's a lot of movies where you'll finish a movie and you'll sort of think, okay, let me think. What is that ending supposed to mean? That ending was fascinating. What's it supposed to mean? Like take a movie like Inception. You know, people watch that final scene of the, the thing spinning and they're like, okay, so what's it supposed to mean? They know what it is. This last act is so out of left field. Uh, and it is so open-ended and nothing here is spelled out for you that you literally will finish this movie going, all right, okay, this is this is my moment. This is where I figure out what the plot is. Okay, pot in a hotel room. Old man. Uh, another old man. Another old man? What's with all the old men? Why is he becoming them? 
that fetus is on the bed. I hope that they have rubber sheets because that's going to leave a mess. Why is it in space now? <laughs> it's just question after question after question, and you are left with nothing in this movie to make you understand it. It really does take a week or more or watching a second time or watching 2010 to even start to comprehend what this is supposed to be. And I think one of the interesting interpretations that uh, whether this is the intention or not is that you know, obviously this place exists, you sort of said it like, it is, it's It's not reality. It exists outside of reality. So is this him that he will spend his entire life there inside this monolith and he's just viewing all these things? But because it's outside of reality, it's also outside of time. So he can both see and be older, younger versions of himself. Uh, what is the whole reborn thing? That's sort of a different uh, thing, conversation, which we'll, you know, get to in a second. But it's just, it's so open, so many ways you could interpret this. Uh, the thing that, again, I always forget about this movie. I, now I'm going to say forget. I think I always assume wrong. And now I watch this and I realize they weren't invited here. And that's going to become really important when we get to 2010. Um, they stumbled across this. They, they dug up a monolith on the moon. What the monolith was there for. Obviously, the monolith at the be beginning was put there for the purpose of evolving these apes uh these humans weren't meant to stumble across this so it's like is dave being attacked what is it who knows uh but do you know anything about what happens post 2001 in 2010 or any of the other novels well i think there was like a pretty big um wasn't there like a terrorist attack or something in 2001 and then i think in 2010 there was a <laughs> An Olympics in Vancouver, I feel. I think the Commonwealth Games might have been in oh, India. Oh, Kubrick called it all. What yeah. a guy. <laughs> just, just, I think that's what happened in 2001 and 2010. Yeah. I'm not too sure. Uh, but do you know, no. like... the answer, no. Uh, I just... Okay. Um, hopefully, this isn't going to spoil too much for oh, you. Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited now. <laughs> but anybody who doesn't Roy want to spoil... survives the shark and goes into space. That is exactly what happens. Um, oh, you son of a bitch, I'm going into space. <laughs> We're going to need a bigger ship. <laughs> We're going to need a bigger pod. We're going to need a bigger howl. Ooh. We're going to build an 18-inch howl. I thought uh, you liked size, Colin. <laughs> size doesn't matter, Dave. <laughs> uh, it's all about the redness of the eye. Um, let's... <laughs> Take that how you will. Open for interpretation, people. Anyways, so... <laughs> like all our podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> I had a baby at the end of that podcast. What does it mean? So, it took 15 years before Arthur C. Clarke wrote the sequel to this. And I don't know if he ever had an idea in his head for a sequel or where this was going to go. In the end, I think there ended up being, there was four books in total. There was 2001, 2010, 2061, and then 3001 is the final one. And it's not like they form this big story that takes you for... I mean, I've read 2001 and 2010. I sort of know what 2061 and 3001 are about. Uh, but they're all sort of just looking at the same idea of what is this alien race? Uh, what is their purpose from the point of view of different characters? So in the second one, it becomes you know Haywood Floyd, this doctor with Stanley Kubrick's daughter at the beginning of the movie. Uh, and... I guess the one thing that's very important to note is that the, the sequel, the movie that got made only two years later in 1984 with Roy Scheider in it, um, well, the most important thing is it also got John Lithgow. And how great is John Lithgow? 
but also Kira Julia reprises his role as Dave, and it is different because we see him kind of reborn as a star child. For what I remember in 2010, the movie, you see him as himself when they get there. Uh, but that could also be the whole thing about he's he's existing outside of time. They're seeing him at a certain point of his time in the monolith. Uh, what Jupiter was all about uh, was the same thing from the beginning with the monolith and the apes. So on a moon of Jupiter, uh, what you see at the end of 2010 is they send another crew there to try to find out what happened to you know Dave in the first one. Uh, they eventually witness... Basically, one of the moons of Jupiter, Jupiter itself gets destroyed, the planet, and becomes a new star, and one of the worlds there is given life. And the idea is that this alien race or whatever, that they, just like they did with the apes, they kind of like will uh, accelerate the next stage in evolution of a species. And in this case, the whole thing with Jupiter was them creating a new world, and it sort of ends with them sending a signal to the humans saying, you can have any planet or any star out there but this one is just for these people like the the europans the jupiter people or whatever um so what the monoliths are for is sort of spelled out as these are some type of device that's used by these aliens the most intelligent beings in the world and that they will use this to create life to evolve life and whatever and so on and so on it is really interesting when you get into it 2010 is a very different movie it's played more like Still an intelligent science fiction movie, but kind of your typical 1984 sci-fi movie. It is easy to follow. It's not weird. It's not, you know, focused on being super realistic, even though it still is semi-realistic. It's more of an entertaining movie, but something that would be worth checking out still. Uh, It's got Helen Mirren in it. It's got Helen Mirren, John Lithgow. um, Two third watch actors, both Roy Scheider and Helen Mirren. There you go. I mean, yeah, there you go. We, we'll cover that next week here on the Oz Network. <laughs> and Douglas Rain hero and Godzilla. Yeah, and and Hal does come back, and uh, I believe this time Hal is a full fledged hero. There's nothing villainous about Hal, uh, but uh, no, it's an interesting movie, and that's kind of what the story is about. Now, what the Star Child is there for? Uh, I, again, I don't remember this from the novel. But apparently, at the end of the novel what Dave the Star Child does above Earth is he actually destroys Earth with a nuclear weapon or something like that or he launches a nuclear weapon Classic or causes Dave. Yeah. <laughs> Hal's really rubbed off on him with this whole murder <laughs> thing. Uh but that's kind of where it goes and um a lot of people appreciate two thousand ten for what it is, but I think it's sort of like a Wizard of Oz thing. You know, the Wizard of Oz is based on a book that had like twelve or thirteen sequels and at the time the Wizard of Oz movie came out, you know, the books were all popular. It wasn't a thing where it's like, well, this one's sacred. You can't make a sequel. There were already a dozen sequels. But people so worship the Wizard of Oz movie that they think, well, you can't remake it. You can't make a sequel or anything. And that's sort of the way I think 2001 is because there was development even with Tom Hanks in the late 90s, early 2000s to try to make 3001 into a movie to finish out this as a trilogy. And it just never got off the ground. And they've tried making miniseries and all that. I think this movie is just so beloved now and it stands on its own as being so unique that people just – I don't think you're ever going to get a proper sequel out of this. I thought Tom Hanks did make that sequel. I thought it was called Cloud Atlas. Oh, I avoided that movie like the plague. I actually love Cloud Atlas. It's a you good would. <laughs> hey, it's got Hugh Grant in it and, and 
Tom Hanks and Halle Berry and Natalie Portman told the Wachowski brothers to make it, so she gets a special thanks in the credits. So yeah. Oh, she's to blame. Okay. Yeah, she was reading it during uh, V for Vendetta, and she was meant to star in it, but she couldn't, so she gets a special thanks in the credits. Lucky her. Um, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> she yeah, got, a, got away movie. from those people with sand because it was coarse and rough and gets everywhere. <laughs> and, irritating, and went and got thanked for Cloud Atlas. Now, the most interesting thing about 2001 is the legacy of this movie because as we've kind of gone through, the reaction wasn't great when it first came out. We'll quickly go through a few of the reviews here. Uh, and it's very tough to find your reviews. You don't know if a lot of these reviews are newer ones, older ones, or whatever. Uh, but very much a mixed reaction when it came out. Um, I love the one that you mentioned with, uh, what was his name, Rock Hudson, uh, <laughs> which is probably most people's reaction when it came out. Uh, here we go. The New Yorker said it's some kind of great film and an unforgettable endeavor. The film is hypnotically entertaining and is funny without once being gaggy, but is also rather harrowing. Uh, I don't mm. know what was funny in this movie. That was um, hilarious. All the, the, the boss- scenes of the monkeys. Didn't you hear what they critic. were saying? They were telling good jokes. A uh, critic from the Boston Globe said, The world's most extraordinary film. Nothing like has ever been shown in Boston before, for that matter, anywhere. Roger Ebert gave it a perfect four-star review. It succeeds magnificently on a cosmic scale. Uh, Pauline Kale called it monumentally unimaginative movie. Uh, <laughs> Stanley Kaufman of the New Republic said, A film that is so dull it even dulls our interest in the techno- technical ingenuity for the sake of which Kubrick has allowed it to become dull. So people didn't know what to think of this movie, and I think that's what's most interesting because I wonder if this movie came out today if we'd have the same reaction. You mentioned Donnie Darko because that was one of the other ones I wanted to mention. Uh, I think a movie has to come out that is different for anybody to accept different movies after that. And the first one that comes out is never really that well received. And Donnie Darko is a perfect example because I remember – when that movie first came out, thinking, well, this sounds interesting. And it just bombed, like like it was pulled from theaters after two weeks. And it only developed its following once it came out on DVD and Blu-ray. And even then, it took like a year. And now it's considered this classic. And it's not unusual to see like a really dark sci-fi, psychological sci-fi horror movie that doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's just creepy and unsettling in certain ways. Donnie Darko kind of created its own thing. We saw that with Inception. Uh, just a completely different visual style and a different way of telling stories. And now we get, you know, not knockoffs of Inception, but if it wasn't for an Inception coming out, if somebody else had made that movie wrong, I don't think people accept it. If somebody had made, I don't mind Donnie Darko. I think it's, I don't think it's the greatest movie ever made, but, uh, if Donnie Darko had come out a year or two earlier, would sci-fi had changed the way it did? And 1968 is so important because, Planet of the Apes is the other movie that comes out this year, and for years those would be the two highest-grossing sci-fi movies of all time. Neither of which were like particularly huge by like Avenger standards or anything like that. Uh, but prior to this, sci-fi was a B-movie genre, and it's very similar to like what horror is now. Obviously, there are some horror movies that get great reviews, but horror is still viewed as a B-genre. You're not going to get a 100 million dollar horror movie. Uh, there's no point in investing that much money in it. And all sci-fi movies prior to this were monster movies or cheap alien invasion movies. And you had a TV show like The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits. And on TV, they could tell stories like this, but nothing in movies. And 2001 and Planet of the Apes both come out the same year. They both treat sci-fi seriously. And sci-fi basically gets changed from that point on. And once we get up to the Star Wars and 
uh, close encounters and everything else like that. Just how much of a visual effect this had on other directors is huge. But even just looking at the rest of the 70s movies and the the whole 70s sci-fi genre with movies like Logan's Run or THX 1138, it's all dark sci-fi kind of like this because this is kind of a dark movie. Uh, so the legacy of this movie, more than anything, is I think it was a movie that came out just at the right time. It was able to piggyback off another serious sci-fi movie. And suddenly people were like, okay, I understand that sci-fi novels can be smart, but I never thought I would see a smart sci-fi movie. Which it also feeds into the moon landing conspiracy theories, if you didn't know. Because uh, apparently a lot of the moon landing conspiracy theorists claim that it is not a coincidence that this movie came out just a year before the moon landing <laughs> and that all footage of Armstrong's voyage was actually leftover footage from this movie. So that's what a lot of people claim. Uh, I'm just reading that stat there. I found that fascinating. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, you read what Steven Spielberg said, that this was the film generation's big bang, basically. Yeah. Um, and, you know, George Lucas obviously saying it was hugely inspirational. And, you know, we know a little movie that would come out nine years after this, basically, because of Using his- the same visual effects supervisor as well. I think that was something I forgot to mention. The guy who did the visual effects for 2001, George Lucas said, I need this guy if anybody's going to take my Star Wars movie seriously. Mm, well, you can definitely see where it yeah came from. But yeah, I, I mean, you and I were not born in this era, but I mean, you could just imagine how this would have been taken back then. I mean, you just said some of the reviews, but I just think it's it would... The fact that we can sit here 50 years later and say it still looks absolutely fantastic and we live in the day and age where, you know, we have photorealistic green men getting angry and shit and I don't know, like all the, all our movies and everything that happened. And yeah, like it's just, it's just crazy to think what people would have been visually looking at this, whether you like it or not, you know, it's just, yeah, crazy. I want to go back to 1968, (laughs) invent the horse and then ride to the, uh, (laughs) ride to the movie theater and, and watch this with, with uh, what was our our lady's name? Who used to watch the uh, James Bond movies? Uh, <laughs> oh God, I've gone blank. You know who I'm talking about? No. Deidre or Dolores or something like that. Was it um, Dolores? No, it was um Mildred. Mildred, Mildred, Mildred yes. Who was watching James Bond movies <laughs> in the 60s? Mildred, <laughs> what did you think do that? Oh, it's brilliant! I can see it all. Oh, like I'm in space. Yeah. Well, another thing just to mention about seeing this on the big screen is that I'm I'm actually upset I've never have. Now, this looks great on a DVD. Yeah, uh, I don't even have the Blu-ray of this. I just have the DVD. And looking at the DVD on my screen, it still looked incredible. I remember seeing this on TV, and it looked breathtaking. Uh, this was playing last year. They did a, a month where they showed, um, uh, and they're doing it uh, now with... Um, well, what was it? They have like a uh, Saving Private Ryan being, they do, they're doing their own anniversary month this year uh, with Saving Private Ryan and other movies being played at the movie theater right by my house. But um, last year they had like a sci-fi one uh, where I got to see T- George Lucas's first movie, THX 1138 in theaters. Uh, and then they, 2001 was I think the last movie they were supposed to have on like a Saturday morning. And I just happened to get the flu that day and didn't get to see it. But this is one of those ones where it's like, if I got the chance to see this on a big screen, I would take it. And I think anybody would take it, whether you like the movie or not, because it's going to look incredible. What I find interesting is the reputation of the movie, because one of the interesting history things is that this didn't do that well when they first started opening the movie, because there was this weird reaction to it. And it was only when some theater goers started to notice that a bunch of young people were showing up this movie, maybe smelling a little bit funny, um, <laughs> maybe... 
looking a little bit dilated in the pupils <laughs> that uh, the business started to pick up. So they remarketed the movie and uh, added the t- tagline, The Ultimate Trip. And this has this reputation for being like, you know, uh, a, not a druggy movie, but like uh, th- this is something that like people will go to, to – uh, 2001 high just so they could watch that Stargate <laughs> sequence. You know, I, I enjoy watching this movie completely sober. I've never you know, taken any kind of drugs <laughs> in my life, but this movie still looks great. But I can't even imagine what people in 1968 with what they were taking in 1968 thought. Cause did you read the story about the guy running through the, the screen? Uh, no, but I want to know about the, oh, story I'm gonna, the guy running through the screen. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to see if I can find it here, but uh, you may have to give me a second. Uh, the basic gist of it was um, when this movie was playing. Oh, here we go. Uh, so someone in San Francisco even ran right through the screen screaming, It's God! <laughs> so they came up with the new poster that said, 2001, The Ultimate Trip. Uh, <laughs> this was 1968. So this would have been crazy in 1968. Even just the reaction to it is weird. I think partly because... Obviously, some mixed response. It was a movie that nobody had seen before, so obviously, reputation of this would grow over time. But this movie did not blow away, even like as far as the Oscars go. Um, it was nominated for what four Academy Awards? Yeah, it won for visual effects. It was only up against one other movie for visual effects. Just looking at 1968, the only other movie that was nominated for visual effects was a war movie called Ice Station Zebra. Oh, classic. Uh, Starring Rock Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he walked out. He's like, oh, this yeah. movie's going to win special effects, not Ice Station Zebra. <laughs> <laughs> but the other movies it was nominated for, it wasn't nominated for Best Picture, which I'll get to in a second, which is weird. Stanley Kubrick did get a Best Director nomination. Uh, obviously, he'd previously done Spartacus and you know, Doctor Strangelove, so people loved Stanley Kubrick. Uh, it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, didn't win. Uh Nominated for production design. Can you imagine the sets for this movie lost to Oliver, the musical Oliver? And that's Please the main sir, winner that year. Can I get fucked? No, that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that was Hal's deleted line for that's the movie. That's Hal, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the movies that got a Best Picture nomination here, Oliver, which won Best Picture, Funny Girl, The Lion in Winter, Rachel, Rachel, and Romeo and Juliet. Now, if you stack any of those movies or any other movie in 1961 or 1968 up against 2001 A Space Odyssey... I would say 9 out of 10 people would assume 2001 A Space Odyssey would win Best Picture. Yeah, and I think it was one of these lists that I have watched in the past, uh, and it's like top 10 films that won the Best Picture that shouldn't have, and like what should have won it that year, and um, this was in, I remember seeing it for that one, and they were like, this wasn't even nominated, you know, and how they're saying it was an absolute travesty, and you know, that's the one where always number one is Crash shouldn't have won, and it should have been Brokeback Mountain or something like yeah. that, but um, yeah, I, I would have assumed, having watched in this film, that it would have at least been nominated, but yeah, it's ridiculous to think that it hasn't been, considering that, I mean, Oliver, I, I mean, they've remade that, what, like 3,000 times, haven't yeah. they? <laughs> um, whereas this has just been untouchable, so... Yeah, it's crazy that it won one Academy Award. Did, did Star Wars get nominated for Best Picture? At it least? did, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, even Star Wars got nominated for Best Picture, so yeah. Um, obviously, the reputation improved over the years as people started to understand the movie more. Uh, by 2000, or sorry, by 1998, the AFI, when they did their top 100 movies, it came in number 22 of all time. And in 2007, nine years later, they redid the list. It actually was bumped up to 15. 
So uh, this is sort of considered to be Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece. Uh, as somebody who's like a huge Stanley Kubrick fan, I mean, I got to say, as much as I do love this movie, I'm going to put this lower than Doctor Strange Love, A Clockwork Orange, Paths of Glory. You know, I might put it up there a little higher than The Shining. Not that I think there's anything wrong with The Shining, but I think both those movies are very similar. That they're they're kind of they're they're different. They're very different for their time, and you appreciate it more visually than you do for the story. But uh, uh, no, obviously the reputation improved over the years with it. Um, what is this known for? Here's uh, another thing we do. Uh, and most of these things are not going to be that funny, but I'll find whatever I can. So these are the plot keywords on IMDb. Monolith. You think oh. this is thing just for 2001? 2001 is number one for movies with monolith, followed by Priest starring Paul Bettany, 2000, <laughs> which is higher than 2010, which is crazy. Uh, Abominable, uh, Evangelion 1.0, You Are Not Alone, and a movie called The Monolith Monsters from 1957. Oh, we got to cover that one. Yeah, uh, for movies with a plot keyword of year 2001, <laughs> apparently the list is blank. It does not have any results, Aww. even though it is linked to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, I was, I was hoping for, um, I don't know, Jurassic Park 3 or something like that. Or... <laughs> um, beaten to Death movie. What's your favorite movie there where somebody's beaten to death? I think the IMDb is just down right Shawshank now. Redemption. Also... <laughs> this is also coming up with zero things for beaten to death. We know there's something beaten to death in it. Uh, yeah, Soviet it's not working American... for any of them. <laughs> yeah, Soviet American... Okay, so I was able to click on one and it's down. We'll just read some of these here. Lip reading, bone, whoa. That was the fan fiction, not this movie. <laughs> uh, birthdays, so the little girl makes a plot keyword in this movie. And technophobia. Um there's fan fiction on that too. It's back. Technophobia, Jurassic Park number one, 2001 number two, iRobot number three, AI artificial intelligence, and Lego Jurassic World. Uh, one last thing just to mention on this, how this made science fiction very real and realistic and obviously all the movies that came after that. Uh, partly due to Star Wars, the popular Star Wars, Stanley Kubrick didn't have a problem with Star Wars, but maybe because he was sort of held as like the godfather of sci-fi for so long when Star Wars came out and blew everything away, the way that movies changed to be more about sci-fi being blockbuster at the time, Stanley Kubrick always wanted, he had this desire for sci-fi to go back to being intelligent again. So he spent 20 years after Star Wars came out trying to develop AI artificial intelligence, which eventually would come out after his death, uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, who he met when he was filming The Shining and Spielberg was filming Raiders of the Lost Ark. Bless you. Bless you, Mallory. Um, <laughs> so AI an episode without sneezing in the background. <laughs> uh, it's always Canadian women who sneeze, if you haven't Yeah, noticed. it is. Damn Canadian women. <laughs> but uh, that was sort of his lifelong goal, was that he wanted to bring sci-fi back to being intelligent. So his goal was to make artificial intelligence uh, the movie, not the real thing. And eventually was it? it passed him. <laughs> and uh, apparently the story was he gave Spielberg his blessing to make it before he died, saying, I want you to make this movie. I think ultimately what happened is he died and you know his family said, well, you should make this. Have you ever... You said you have seen AI Artificial Intelligence. Um, yeah. That's a movie where the third it. act... That's a movie where <laughs> the third act falls apart. I think we can agree. I mean, that's uh, dated just because it was when Haley Joel Osment was a thing. So, and Jude Law. Yeah, Hall, exactly. Too, so. <laughs> yeah. 
But, I mean, I, I remember, again, loving the first two-thirds of that movie. Unlike 2001, I don't think the third act grows on you at all. But that I would always, have been the I was starting to interrupt. I always got to confuse the Bicentennial Man with Robin Williams, and I like Bicentennial oh, yeah. Man better. I probably would agree. Uh, although I like the first two-thirds of AI or artificial intelligence more. But that's where Kubrick would go. Obviously, Kubrick would go on to do The Shining, which would probably become his most successful movie post-2001. But also, uh, as we mentioned, Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon and Eyes Wide Shut later on, Full Metal Jacket. Um, Anything you want to add before we rate this on 2001? Did your dad watch this more than once ever? No, I I, I mentioned to him like yesterday or the day before that I was doing oh, stupid movie, stupid movie. And I I actually watched this movie because I initially we were meant to be recording a week ago, so I was like, shit, I better watch this. And I watched it about one o'clock in the morning, so like I didn't go to bed till like (laughs) four. Um, so um, there was that. But no, I don't. I wouldn't have a clue how many times Dad's seen it outside of the one time he complains about it enough. You keep mentioning The Shining. To me, I've never seen The Shining, but. Uh, we recently watched Ready Player One when they've got the whole Shining stuff in it. And, uh, well, the, the books oh, yeah. give you shit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, did, you, did you hear that? I said the book's good. We, well, I listened to the <laughs> audio book. But ben <laughs> listened to a book. <laughs> Ready Player One. Good book. Movie. Not so good. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that's where I was thinking of The Shining. I don't know where I was going with that. Let's rate this movie, Colin. Uh, well, I'm going to buy it. And... If you had asked me when I was 18 and saw this for the first time, I would have said, I'm not sure if I want to buy Rent Bin. Um, a week later, I probably would have said I would have rented it. When I watched it a second time, I would have said buy it. But now, I mean, I'll definitely buy this movie. And maybe I need to watch it more than every couple of years because I always will look back and think like, oh, yeah, 2001 was good, but it wasn't great. And then I watch a movie. I'm like, no, this is a great movie. So definitely buy it for me. Well, you can't watch it every couple of years because it takes that long to watch it. So Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I started this one in 2014, and we finally finished it, so we decided to cover it. Well, you probably thought I was going to bin this movie. I'm not going to bin it, but no. I'm not going to buy it. I'm going to rent it. Um, I mean, there was just... Again, I, I'm probably renting it because it's been a week since I've watched it. And, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it wasn't absolutely terrible. There's definitely bits about this movie where I'm like, huh, look at most people. And it's not a movie I would rush out to watch any time again soon because I have to clear my schedule for a few years. But <laughs> I, you know, I didn't absolutely despise it. And I think, again, as I keep saying, it's a beautiful film to watch. The music's great to listen to. And it's definitely something that you walk out remembering. So... I mean, between this and Greece, um, oh. Oh, I mean, that's a tough one. Greece is more entertaining to watch in a in a sitting, but this is a much more memorable film in terms of what it what it's achieved for for movies in general. So, and without still this, has more story than Greece. Well, it does have more story than Greece, <laughs> and without this, we would not have. I don't like sand; it's coarse, rough, and yeah. irritating, and gets everywhere. <laughs> so, thank you, Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. And we also would not have Homer Simpson. Uh, yeah. Be careful, they're ruffled. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I honestly, I was tossed up between whether you were going to bin this movie because it just, it, I think that you perfectly set up when you said you had seen clips of this, you kind of knew about it. If somebody goes in this completely blind, I think anybody's going to bin this the first time. Mm. Um, if, if they're sober and watching it, I guess. But, uh, for somebody who actually had some knowledge, I think that helps. And you're not completely confused. So I was kind of hoping that you would see enough in this that you would rent it. But, uh, so you didn't let me down, Ben. You're smarter oh. than I gave you credit for. 
Thank you. It, it all comes down to the fact that I learned about him at university. So, you know, that's... <laughs> I, I should leave now. <laughs> I'm going to rephrase the line. You're cleverer than you look. Yeah, it's better than being clever than you are. Yeah, well, looking cleverer than you are, but okay. Oh, I nearly got it right. <laughs> you're, no longer, you're no longer clever than you look. You botched a line from Die Another Day, was it? Damn it. Damn it. I <laughs> mucked up Die Another Day quotes. Um, <laughs> so I've got I know that's not from Die Another Day, but whatever. <laughs> Just wanted to impersonate Pierce Brosnan. Uh, ben not what parachutes is... for the most of us. Oh, not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> What is coming next on anniversary, oh. uh, fall, <laughs> and when are we getting to it? Ah, oh, look, it's uh, it's gonna be sometime in the year 2018. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> life circumstances. I'm about to leave the country and move to another country. Can I just say that uh, this might be the first month where I have recorded an episode in three different countries. <laughs> started off in Canada for Greece. Now I'm back in Australia, and the next one I'll be in New Zealand. Uh, we're doing Last Action Hero, which I think you've not seen, which Never. amazes me that you have not seen it. Um, it's, it's its 25th anniversary. Uh, it sort of was overshadowed a lot by Jurassic Park because it was basically released, I think, the week after or the week of Jurassic Park in 1993. And it's just, it's, to me, it's kind of like True Lies. It's like an Arnold Schwarzenegger film that I think was universally hated when it came out, mm-hmm. but has kind of grown a huge cult following. And it's just one of these really, self-referential films where it's kind of parroting the film industry and kind of parroting Arnold Schwarzenegger's film career and Arnold Schwarzenegger's brilliant in it like he's just just the way he plays it is so good and it's just such a great film and I'm really looking forward I I feel you will love this movie and we have not done an Arnold film since our very first recap on this uh, podcast so but you know let's have two odd hours of Arnold quotes which are going to be fantastic so, um, yes, get to the chopper and listen to <laughs> Last Action Hero, because we'll be back. Uh, no, you're completely right when um, you said that this reputation of this movie was bad for so long, because that's probably the reason I didn't see it. I remember when this first came out, just thinking, that movie looks great. And I don't even think that it's a movie that necessarily people saw and thought, well, that was a bad movie. It's just because the expectation was so high for it to be successful when it came out and made almost no money it just sort of developed this reputation well if a Schwarzenegger movie made no money then it must be a bad movie Uh, but I think when this started to develop that cult following it's probably only been maybe within the last 5-10 years Uh, and one of the reasons I've always been more excited to see this movie is because John McTiernan directed it who's the guy that made Die Hard Uh, Mm. so I mean it has a crazy plot, the whole idea about what is it, that this kid gets transported into the movie world. So it seems like a very clever movie. It's, I'm hoping that this lives up to the expectations I had as a child seeing the trailer and that maybe the cult following now hasn't set my expectations a little bit too high. But this will be the first time I've ever seen it. And uh, I'm a huge Schwarzenegger fan. Like, it doesn't matter what he... We, we've talked about this on the sixth day. It doesn't matter what he... A bad Schwarzenegger movie is still fun just because he's in it. So I'm looking forward to it. It's, uh, it's it's probably been a while since I've seen it too, and um, you know the the funny thing is it's the second most excited I am for this month because we're getting to Godzilla in two weeks. Yeah. The one the one podcast that will champion the nineteen ninety eight Godzilla movie. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just a fun movie. It really is, and I mean I think True Lies came out a year after this, and 
you know, if we ever do an Arnold Schwarzenegger month, I feel True Lies has to be in there because True Lies is just one of my favorite Schwarzenegger films as well. But, uh, yeah, such a, such a great movie. I'm so looking forward to covering this film. Uh, when we're going to bring that episode to you, hopefully soon. So stay yeah. tuned. <laughs> we will have other things in the meantime. We've, uh, run into October already. So we should also mention, just like we did last year, uh, Rossi and I are going to be covering some Halloween episodes, which, uh, I'll just clue you in on. I'll just clue you in on what all of them are going to be. So we're going to do at least three of these, maybe a fourth one if we have time. But we're going to be starting with the uh, the Adams Family movie uh, from, was it, 1992 or whatever. And then we're going to do, just like we did with Parks and Recreation last year, we're going to do two Home Improvement Halloween episodes. Because Home <laughs> Improvement was my childhood favorite show. Uh, and then we're going to finish it off with another movie that I absolutely hate, just like Titanic, Hocus Pocus, ah. with Bette Midler, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, Jamie... Yeah, exactly. Horse lady. Uh, Jamie loves this movie. Rossi loves this movie. I've heard rumors that Jared may even be joining us for Hocus oh, Pocus. Jared. So I may be very outnumbered on that podcast. So that'll be coming soon. But we'll finish up anniversary month as we segue into our next month, definitely. Are yeah, you interested a, in Hocus Pocus? I've never seen it. But I, I did okay. see they put a thing up saying that they were making a, a new one for the Disney streaming channel. Mm. Well, you should do Practical Magic. I'd join you for a Practical Magic one. Sandra Bullock, Nicole Kidman, that's a great film. You know, you know what's funny is that that's one of the – Jamie has a list of Halloween movies she loves to watch, which includes Adam's Family, Hocus Pocus, uh, Practical Magic, and The Craft. And uh, yeah. of, I, I honestly don't like – well, I like the Adam's Family movie, but I don't like Hocus Pocus – I don't like Practical Magic, and the craft actually makes me nauseous when I watch it. <laughs> is it so, Casper said at Halloween when they have the big the big um, dance at the end, or is that that's not? Uh, I don't remember. I, I, the only time I watched it was when Jamie bought it for Casper for <laughs> Christmas, uh, not realizing he's not going to pay attention. So it basically became a present to herself. It is no, it is. I'm just reading it here. Casper is a brilliant movie. I would join you for Casper. Maybe if we have a fourth uh, time to do a fourth episode, maybe we'll do that. Yeah, we'll throw it because I mean, Cask is oh, such a good movie. Bill Pullman's mm. in it, you know. Come on! Oh, gotta love Bill Pullman. Christina Ricci when she was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and you know it's a nineteen nineties movie when I utter this sentence. Well, this name, Devon Sawyer. Uh, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> that's a name that hasn't been mentioned since nineteen ninety four. So there you go. <laughs> So maybe that'll be coming to us as well. Uh, but stay tuned. We'll have uh, Nip Tuck and Third Watch episodes as well. We covered a Survivor episode. We may cover more this season. We'll see. It's actually been a good season, so I'm kind of excited about it. Uh, Lost is on hold for now, but probably coming <laughs> Sorry back about soon, that, right? Lost fans. Lost is lost right now. Um, <laughs> but it is. It, it, we, we haven't given up. It, it is in the pipeline. It's just a scheduling uh, issue with obviously Noah and I are busy little beavers outside of it, but um, yeah, no, Lost is coming back. We just hopefully will be able to tell you soon when it will be coming back. It'll be coming back eventually. If not, we'll find a replacement show. Um, yes, <laughs> <laughs> like Alias. If anybody ever wants to cover Alias with me, Found uh, the sequel that didn't people know. <laughs> or Manifest, the new hey, Lost yeah, type started watching it. show. Have you started yeah. watching it? Uh, I haven't. I've got the first two episodes. I've been waiting to watch it with Jamie. So, eh, it's, I mean, it's it's eh, it's eh. okay. It's kind of like remember they did Flash Forward and Under the oh, Dome yeah. and the event and yeah. all those things. I really enjoyed Flash Forward. Flash Forward was great, but um, yeah. the rest Not Under the Dome. 
Yeah. I mean, a show that I've actually just on a real off ten, uh, topic. Speaking of loss, well, it's kind of there. Dominic Monaghan, great Charlie. We love Dominic Monaghan. He's actually just been in an Australian TV series, which uh, I'm just about to watch the final episode of. It's called um, Bite Club, and basically he plays a serial killer. He's a cop, but he's a serial killer, and you know he's a serial killer in the very first episode. So it's not like I'm spoiling it. Um, and it's actually really, it's kind of got a bit of a Dexter vibe in aspects, like you know this cop's like a serial killer, but. Unlike Dexter, he's not doing it for good. He's just a psycho bastard. So um, it's actually pretty good to see Dominic Monaghan kind of on TV again. And also, like, on an Australian show. It's it's not bad. It's only, like, an eight-episode series. But, yeah, I, it's it's not too bad. Also coming soon to the Oz Network. <laughs> <laughs> uh So stay tuned for more episodes coming up and uh, the conclusion of Anniversary Month. Uh, hopefully very soon because we're getting to some exciting ones because Godzilla is coming as we said Uh, let's wrap this up my name is Colin and mommy's gone to the bathroom and my name is Ben and to quote the fanfiction.net story if you give (laughs) how a cookie by Sam Morgana take the plate eat it all have another aren't you satisfied yet take it eat it Another, 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 another. Thank you for listening to the Oz Network. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your speakers every week. For more information, hit us up at theoznetwork.net.